This is VOCM Open Line. Call 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. The views and opinions of this program are not necessarily those of this station. The biggest conversation in Newfoundland and Labrador starts now. Here's VOCM Open Line host Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. <clears throat> right off the bat, there we go. Big thanks to Linda Swain for uh, so opening in for me for a couple of days when my throat was suffering. Anyway, good morning to you. Well, welcome to the program. It's Wednesday, February the 28th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams is producing the program. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long-distance 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So as you heard Brian Medora say in the news, on a night where Mercer scores his 16th and Newhook chalks up another assist on the air, looking good out there, boys. I'm headed to a balmy high of 10 degrees today. It's good news for people who are tired of the winter. It really does start to drag on at this point of the year. But if you look at some of the images coming from in particular Marble Mountain has been decimated. We know they struggled to get open in the first place. There was a good weekend for those skiers and snowboarders who made it out there and then the images of it, they'll virtually just washed away. And this warm temperature not going to help the White Hills either, but folks are appreciating the warmer weather today. <coughs> Pardon me. So, all well underway at the uh, NL Winter Games out in Gander. An unfortunate start when it came to the fact that accommodations weren't ready for all the teams. Team Indigenous actually slept on the floor. I think that's been rectified, but good luck to all participants and all of their family members, their coaches and supporters. Good luck and have a bit of fun. Also, same thing to those participating in the National Special Olympics. Team NL is in Calgary participating. There's uh, 70 persons around the team, so good luck. Have a lot of fun at the Special Olympics out in Calgary. They're competing in seven different sports. Five-pin bowling, cross-country skiing, curling, floor hockey, skating, both figure and speed skating, and snowshoeing. So best wishes from all of us here at Open Line, and of course from the parents and caregiver support persons, coaches, volunteers. Love the Special Olympics. Hope they have a great time. All right, then. So we had a guy named Sean Chalk on the show some weeks back when a Regina family had discovered an unopened box of 1979 OPG hockey cards, which would obviously uh, hold a bunch of Gretzky rookie cards. Now, Sean Chalk, who's known as the Gretzky of Gretzky memorabilia collectors, he has an incredible collection himself. He says if he was lucky enough to bid and win and get the box, he wouldn't even open it. You know, I guess it would keep the value of the, uh, the contents entailed, but it has been sold at auction. $5 million Canadian. $5 million for a box of hockey cards. Unbelievable stuff. All right, let's start with education this morning. So it's pink shirt day. When this first was a thing and everyone encouraged to wear pink, of course, bringing awareness to the issue regarding bullying. Unfortunately for us, bullying has become a catch-all. You've heard the stories as much as I have. Student against student, student against teacher, and yes, teacher against student. I've been made aware uh, via email of a really serious issue between a student and a teacher. The teacher with the verbal and harassment and emotional and abuse of this young autistic nonverbal child. It's really a horrific story. But we've got to do a better job in calling it what it is. If someone says your mother dresses you funny or makes fun of your freckles, some of that is the unfortunate reality of growing up because the kids can be sometimes mean-spirited. But when it comes to acts of violence, it's not bullying any longer. So I think we've got to just be careful to call it exactly what it is because sometimes it comes across quite innocuous if someone says, well, there was an incident of bullying at my school, when in fact, if you dig in and get the details, there was fists thrown, haymakers landed. That's a crime. 
That's not bullying. That's violence. So anyway, it's pink shirt day. And so I'm a little late catching up to some of these things. So there has been, as part of the education accord and a teacher's think tank, so the minister responsible for education, Crystalyn Howell, met with NLT president uh, Trent Langdon and apparently some other teachers in the room. So they call the discussions very frank and very heavy. You know, we talk about the shortages when recruitment and retention and healthcare a lot, not necessarily enough in education. But predictably, as I tried to catch up with some of my emails, you know, people saying the teachers are always bellyaching, wanting more and more and more, more money, more resources, overworked, you know the story. When in fact, I think if you take it a step further and you kind of listen to the entirety of the comments come from the NLTA, when they talk about the mental well-being of the teachers, their mental well-being is the education environment. So when it's working better for teachers, inevitably it works better for your student, your child. So I think sometimes we get caught up in saying, well, everybody just wants more. That may indeed be the case, but if the teacher who might be burnt out, overworked, and maybe struggling mentally, that's going to, of course, put strain on the classroom and the learning environment. So we're getting down to the brass tacks, and but once again, you know, task forces and summits and accords, some of them, of course, require to compile all the data here from the people on the front lines, but so that teacher's think tank, apparently it was a productive session, so that's a good one, I suppose. And in the world of learning, we've had conversations about public libraries. Some people think they've gone to the way of the dodo bird, but that's not the case. And you know, it's more than simply just books and periodicals available in your local public library. So the government, once again, through the minister's office, Minister Howell, $600,000 for the public library system. Okay, break it down a bit. $500,000 of that is for the Provincial Information Library Resources Board's core operating grant. And the other $100,000 is going to be spent in other areas of operations. But here's the problem. For a decade or more, the funding for the, the libraries, for grant, grants for the libraries, has not changed. Yet the cost of books and to rotate the resources in the library has increased by about 40%. So you might think that the library is not offering what it once did and it's not the community hub that it once was. Apparently the numbers are up and they're unable to keep up with the times because the grants haven't changed and yet obviously, like everything that we touch, the costs have gone up dramatically, some 40%. So anyway, you want to take on the library issue? I'm into it. Let's keep going. All right, and of course you can go to the library to use the internet. This is a big issue, a big story, and it's going to take a lot of hopefully meaningful conversation to get down to what's good, what's bad, what should be shelved, what should be considered. And this is about the Online Harms Act. So if you listen to some, who their initial reaction would be that this is an effort to censor political speech. It's an attack on freedom of speech, which we don't have in this country. We have freedom of expression, which comes with a cost. It's not the why, it's the how. If if the intention here is to protect children from predators, which are lurking around every digital corner, it's absolutely true. Talking about the spread of misinformation and disinformation, the problem is, is that who is going to be the arbiter of truth? It's so subjective that we're really setting ourselves up. Now, I don't discount the fact that there's lots of problems, and you know it when you see it when we talk about hate speech, but there's some very fine lines in here that are going to be basically left up to subjective opinions, subjective reading when it comes to human rights complaints. So here's the two issues inside, you know, because some of the penalties are extraordinary. Now, there are caveats that talk about shelving frivolous cases, 
But under the Harper government, they did away with Section 13 of the Human Rights Act. And here's what it says. It is a discriminatory practice to communicate or cause to be communicated hate speech by means of the Internet or any other means of telecommunications in a context of which the hate speech is likely to permit detestation or vilification of an individual or group of individuals on the basis of prohibited ground of discrimination. That's a mouthful. Then you get into what the differences are between detestation, which is hate speech, as per the language coming from the Supreme Court of Canada, versus uh, disdain or dislike, which is not char characterized as hate speech. So some of the examples used, and some of the examples, of course, are uh, cases of hyperventilating. But if you're chiming in on the war in Gaza, you're chiming in on the war in Ukraine, you're talking about anti-Semitism or Islamophobia or hatred for the LGBTQ community, you know, whether it be talking about the prime minister with any sort of disdain or Mr. Poliev or Singh or May or anybody else, that's one thing. But it is going to be tricky to get this right. I think we can all, regardless of your political ideology, think that a better effort to protect children on the Internet is absolutely overdue. But how does this bill get extended to putting some sort of lid on people's want, ability, and right to speak their mind. Now, you know hate when you see it. And, of course, the hate that is spewed on the Internet does indeed manifest itself in real time and in real daily lives. The examples are endless. And it has caused some severe trauma and, in some cases, tragedy when hate is whipped up because it's easy enough to be frenzied and f in operating in a fury when your keyboard, your fingers are dancing across the keyboard, and a lot of it is hate. Just go to social media. You can see it all the time. But that Online Harms Act, we can and we should be talking about it because it's not why it's a good idea. It's how it gets executed. You want to take it on? We can do it. This is an interesting story, and bravo to whoever worked on this. And this is, <coughs> pardon me, in reaction to the housing crunch and crisis, which is a very real thing in every province and territory in the country. The blame was quickly assigned to international students, right? We heard from the immigration minister and the housing minister, that would be Miller and Fraser, respectively. And they really pointed a, disti a distinct finger at international students. In addition to that, they said it's all about the bad actors, right? It's all about those private colleges that are just using the international students as a cash cow. You know, $20,000 per, injecting thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars into their own coffers. And yes, the international students' uh, contribution to the economy, the GDP, is absolutely a measure that we can include in this conversation. But... I believe Minister Miller and Minister Fraser, and then the imposition of a 35% decrease in study permits, they kind of pointed the finger a little bit in the wrong direction. It looks like now, based on the research that this one journalist has done, I wish I had their name in front of me, it's not the privates, it's the publics. And here's some of the high-level takeaways. Of the 30 Canadian colleges and universities granted the most international study permits last year, all but one are public. Just 10 Ontario public colleges account for nearly 30% of all study permits issued across the country over the past three years. 12 Ontario public colleges have at least tripled their annual permits since 2018. So that data really calls into question the rationale for what the ministers have both said about the implication of international students on the housing market. And, you know, you look at the $1.6 million to be spent out in the city of Mount Pearl for housing. I think we can all boil it back. You know, you can say pump the brakes on immigration. Housing starts in the country last year were just over uh, 233,000. And if some 2.45 people uh, occupy homes on the average across the country, 
we simply have ch to change our tune and our mindset about housing. So permits and skilled trades are every bit as big part of the problem and the types of homes being built. You know, I can't believe we're still having conversations about modular homes or prefabs or what have you because there have been a thing for a long time. I mean, these are not new concepts, but yet we're talking about it as if someone's had some eureka moment that there's something other than a 1,200-square-foot bungalow, right? Anyway, you want to take on any of those stories from either angle? We can do it. And good morning to the folks out in Trapassi. And the breakwater, gone. Again. Some $900,000, and it didn't last jig time. So the whole issue about how and where we build is going to dominate the conversation. Onside of shortage of skilled tradespeople, onside the permitting process and the time that it takes to get a permit, it's how and where you build. It's going to be a big part of the story. Now, for the town of Trapassi, they chipped in about $120,000 on the uh, tax implications for the breakwater to be built back, and now it's gone. So if someone in the area would like to chime in about next steps or what you see, we're happy to take it on. But on that front, there's a couple of issues that are very closely linked. For people, and investing in your pension, the big hope is return, right? And then there's the concept, which is being attended to in different forms of factors, whether it be at hedge funds or big uh, mutual funds and or pensions. And the concept of divesting in fossil fuels to invest in greener stock and funds. Again, people want a sizable return, they want their assets to be protected. But there's been some analysis done by Shift Action for Pension Wealth and Planet Health, looking at 11 of the country's largest pension managers against the international, what they call best practices. So we're not talking about small potatoes here. We're talking about $2.2 trillion in these funds, the, only the big 11. And when we talk about all the pensions, that would be whether it be uh, the uh, Alberta pension plan for the public sector workers, and they sit on huge amounts of money. So is that something that you give any attention to or concern of, is how your pension money is being invested? I'm sure for some people it absolutely does. Some pensions score higher than others. About apparently the best, if you're looking at the divesting in fossil fuels, is in uh, Quebec. The question that was not answered in this news story was some evaluation of returns. So, yes, if people are concerned with how, how and where their pension money is being invested, fair enough, and you can bring your opinion forward here this morning. But no analysis on return. So the pensions that moved away, even if it was slightly, how did the, the comparison go between revenues earned an investment in a greener so-called fund versus what was once in the portfolio, an investment in fossil fuels. So it's one thing to give me the big numbers, but hopefully there's a follow-up story coming with exactly what the returns look like. Because, let's face it, many people, even folks who are climate change aware and activists on that front, there's still a, you know the control of your assets, the value for money invested, and the returns. Okay, so let's take that on. Sticking with this similar story. So looking at the crab stock, snow crab stock for this year, and nothing has really changed, but what the concern might be, you know, as we talk about the FAW and the ASP and the six-week battle last week and the arbitrator's decision, even though the FFAW said they do it all over again, you know, because they say they have a job to do, one of the worries, maybe, and maybe coming faster than many people would hope, is the temperature of the water. Regardless of your stance on anything regarding, say, for instance, climate change, 
measuring the temperature of the water is just a fact of reality on the ground, on the ground, in the water today. So there was a distinct cooling period between 2012 and 2018. Then there was a couple of years of extremely high temperatures, especially on the bottom, and the implication on the crab itself. So we know, even if you're not a fish harvester, it just stands to reason, that the snow crab, they flourish in colder water. So when we're talking about the exploitable age and size, it's between 9 and 13 years old, shell size of over 94 millimeters for males. You can't keep the females, period. But now, with the water warming, it's taken at least two to four years longer for the crab to reach maturity. So we know landed values are huge in the snow crab business. Uh, apparently, last year, the landed value was from $258 million. But this might not be... This should be a story that has to be carefully considered. So the stock is now... Uh, unpredictable. You know, they're talking about a pretty similar state of affairs this year versus last. We know there were some 51 million tons in the snow crab industry, and we can take it on whether you be a harvester on the processing side and the ruling of the arbitrator, and now the evaluation of what damages or losses actually look like. The FFAW have asked for five years' worth of documents to talk about exactly what damages may be, so that's a big story. But that warming water story, of course, is huge. Yesterday at the steps of the Confederation Building, the Registered Nurses Union, we're protesting about the privatization of healthcare in the country and in this province, in large part looking at the travel nurses issue. So you can say, well, there's two schools of thought, right? Now, the travel nurses is 100% a concern here. People focus in on a five-month period where there was almost $36 million paid and lots of controversy and lots of tentacles we can take on. But the schools of thought on privatization is it used to be that if you were the muckety-muck, the 1%, and you were on a wait list to get your hip replaced. And you thought, well, I can get it done down the road and put $35,000 cash on the barrel head. I'm going to get out of the queue, and I'm going to get take care of myself with a private doctor and private clinic. But then this one story from Quebec, this lady who badly needed hip replacement, and she started to go fund me. So we're going down a road very quickly. You might say, look, it's fine. It's fine to have some private offerings. There already is private health care. But then people who think down the road is that what happens when and if you're working for yourself in a private clinic you get to pick and choose your patients so the folks with the most complex needs would be in the public system doctors in the private sector able to pick whoever they want to treat and then consequently you talk about shortages well the public system you may indeed see more people taken out of the queue but with the complexity of needs that might be very likely servicing only the public sector there's a big conversation yet to be had here because this is coming it's snowballing you know, we're seeing more and more of these types of stories. Travel nurses, sure, they're a big issue. And on that front, the uh, uh, health minister is calling in the comptroller of the province. So people are asking for the auditor general. Fair enough. I think the comp the comptroller is well positioned to do the review. So basically, inside job description definitions, the comptroller general develops and maintains the government's financial control framework and monitors compliance with. So generally it's a guide for the ministry and public sector activities such as procurement and spending. Still some huge questions to be asked about that travel nurse arrangement, but if you want to take it on, we can do exactly that. How are we doing on the phone, Dave? I want to get to the calls. Voices running out already. Uh, very quickly. Interestingly, I knew a couple of years ago that the Germans had applied to conduct low-level flying in Labrador. It hasn't happened up there for a couple of decades. The protests and the clashes were very, very real, and it saw the discontinuation of that low-level flying. 
So that's under 1,000 feet, and the supersonic noise, and the people talk about the impact that had on the caribou, for instance, even though I think there's some data out there that shows that maybe it scattered the caribou, but the caribou and the hunting didn't change a whole, whole lot. But it looks like then-Defense Minister Anita Anand and Premier Fury are both on side with this. So they're using the war in Ukraine as a reason as to why some of this testing is needed, but don't be surprised if this fast tracks. But low-level flying in, in Labrador, never thought we'd see it again, but it looks like they're coming. We're on Twitter, we're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. We're going to kick it off with Tim. He wants to talk tourism. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Tim, you are on the air. Hello. Hi, Tim. Yes, good, good morning. Good morning to you. I'm, I'm one of those super seniors. Super seniors, somebody over 70 years of age. And sometimes we haven't got too much to do, and we, we think about different things. What are you thinking so about this morning? The reason have to come to my mind. Barring Park, I've been in there a couple of times walking. That's a beautiful park. It is. But it's one thing missing. We need Newfoundland dogs and Newfoundland ponies in there. Not only for the tourism, but for everybody else. And the wintertime, you have a slide, they can go for a slide. In the summertime, you go on cars. But wouldn't that be nice for tourism or even local people? They can get between Newfoundland dog and Newfoundland pony and get the picture taken? I think it's lovely. If you, if you go to Signal Hill on a summer day, there's very often a Newfoundland dog and its owner up there. And that dog is the subject of hundreds of photographs every day. So your idea is, I think, spot on. And for folks who have never seen a Newfoundland pony, and I bet you there's plenty oh, of people... I have seen Newfoundland pony. You have not? I've seen, I've seen Newfoundland dogs out walking. Yeah. But it's a thought anyway. Now, the, the barring, I understand they have a, a committee in there that runs that. I must say they do an excellent job. And walking the trails in there are really nice. So if somebody's looking for a place to walk, I would recommend Barring Park. Yeah, Bowering Park is lovely, an absolute gem. There's no doubt about it. I like your idea, though. You know, how exciting to have a couple of storyboards and information boards about the Newfoundland pony itself and or the Newfoundland dog who could simply be on the roam with their walkers or owners. But for the ponies, you know, and a little opportunity for a so-called petting farm, learn a bit about something that's, you know, unique to the province, I think that's a great yeah. idea. Why not? That's my first idea. My second okay. idea. During the summertime... Uh, on the weekends <coughs> and statutory holidays, we should have buses going around St. John's picking up people at a low cost, or whatever the case may be. That's the mechanics, what, how it's going to operate. But bring them in the Barring Park. Also, bring them in the Samuel Nature Park. So you're talking about something in addition to public transit like Metrobus? Yes. Okay. They use the Metrobus. I mean, they don't be busy on the weekends. Are very strong. I'm sure they, they got a bus or two that they can go around different locations. They can go down, say, to Batman Park, you know, Monday Pond or different areas of St. John's and pick up people. Have you been to uh, the Salmoner Nature Park? Yeah, bring them in the Salmoner Nature Park or, or Boring Park or whatever the case may be. Even Topsail Beach you want to. We're up the shore to Fairland for a picnic. Cost. There's a lot of people around here, like myself. If I, if I want to go to Salmoner Nature Park. And I can get on a bus for 4 or $5 instead of driving all the way out there and driving back. I'd pay it. I'd be happy. Fair enough. It's a nice day for a walk today, Tim. Are you going to make your way into the park? Yeah. No. no. 
Did you have another idea you'd like to share? Yeah, my third idea. Okay, let's go. I think, I think Newfoundland could be the major tourism destination for all of North America in the summertime if our resources were properly developed. Now, I'm going way back up. we got three pound barons up there. Then he comes on down to the golf course. You got the flow bearing, and you got Long Pond. That river flowing out of Long Pond, Rennie's River. Why can't you rent a canoe or a kayak in Three Pound Barrens and go on down there? There's, there's only two areas you would have some any problem in this. One is in Sliding Rock. Having to make a, a bit of a detour around that. Yeah. Down uh, where the Rennie's River, where the, where the pool used to be. Other than that, it's clear sailing. And you go right on down to the bottom of Quiet of Pyda. And where you at then? You're at the gut. And at the gut, you could have what? Boats there. Uh, car jigging. Going out, you're looking at whales, icebergs. Yeah, there's a couple of tour opportunities uh, that uh, begin inside Kitty Vitty in the gut. But yeah, I mean, there's no shortage of places and things to do and people to see uh, in. In the entirety of the province. In, in that boat, they can go back up, hmm? and you can see the spout and different birds. It's good hike into the spout. Then you went up to Bayboards and Whitless Bay, and the bird colonies offshore. Yeah, people do indeed do exactly that. Yeah. Tim, I appreciate you sharing your ideas here as a super senior this morning. Would you like to say anything else quickly before I take another one? Uh, I, I, one more. Okay. What I like to have is a cruise ship. Station in St. John's that I can go down and pay a few dollars and go up the east coast of Newfoundland, up Labrador, and then go head towards England to get all the ice up around that area. There, there's an opportunity to do that. And then come down and come down the west coast of Newfoundland and come back to St. John's. I personally will pay to go on something like that. Yeah, there are some of those cruise opportunities. Now, St. John's is not the port of call for them, but some of those cruise opportunities do indeed make their way to the province. I'd like to go on one more. We used to have one out of Lewisport, but I think they stopped. I believe you're right. I don't think that's available anymore. No, I don't think so. So uh, I do know that there's one cruise ship that comes. I don't know if it comes every single year, but it does cruise around the province. And whether or not that's on the agenda for this upcoming cruise season, I'm not sure. But maybe I'll take a look. And if we can find out something that might be of interest to you, we'll let you know. Yeah. Now, now maybe you can answer this question for me. Okay. Last one. Lieutenant Governor and Vladimir Park have got about 50 acres of land there. Why has the Lieutenant Governor there with a... I know half a dozen to a dozen staff members there, living like living like a king. Why shouldn't she work on the Confederation building? Our premier works on the Confederation building in an office, and take the colonial building and the castle there. What a place you can have shows! And what we mean really is Newfoundland got a great history. We had somebody who can read a play or something about the history of Newfoundland. That'd be nice. Yeah, there's some of those out there too. And the Colonial Building, they've done a lovely job restoring it. Uh, and there's, I think, fair question to be asked about the role of the Lieutenant Governor and the amount of land that the office occupies. That'd be a great spot if we're talking about the need for development, the need for homes. Her staff members there, Yeah. besides getting good government jobs, they're giving free accommodations there. 
Well, she is. Her, her and her, her husband are. Yeah. Oh, but they watched him there. I think there's only one staffer that lives. They tell me the one on Benjamin Road. I, I, grew, I grew up on Benjamin Street. When I'm on Benjamin Road, that's where the three-story one, that's where the cook lives. And then we go in and go down towards the end. That's where the, the, the gardeners are. The gardener does live on site too, you're right. on Benjamin Road. <laughs> I don't know who in the heck is staying in that one, but it's a sign up there private on the door. I'm not entirely sure. Tim, I appreciate your time and sharing your ideas here this morning. After the break, I go. Stay in touch. But give some thought to it. I, I will. To, to my way of thinking, I'm planting seeds. And I appreciate the you doing that here this morning. The idea. The, 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 people get tied up with mechanics. How is it going to operate? Well, everything starts with the idea. You can get the committees on the go. You know, you got no board of trade. Maybe the... They might be interested into it. They could be. Tim, I have to run, but I appreciate you planting the seeds. My my wife is mad with me for phoning in. Oh, tell her everything's okay. I'm I'm married over 60 years. Congratulations. What's your wife's name? (laughs) What's your wife's name? Oh, I wouldn't tell you that. No. I didn't ask how old she is. I just asked what her name is. You're into trouble. Okay. Well, I don't want to get me or you in any trouble. She is with five children. Well done. I'm one of five. I'm the oldest of five, as a matter of fact. Well, I got five children, and every one of them got a degree, if not more than one degree. Congratulations. Boys or girls? I got three boys and two girls. Exact opposite in my house. Three girls, two boys. Tim, off I go, sir. Nice talking to you this morning. Take yeah. care. Um, okay. One of my children, one of my children, between my family and my family, he graduated Yeah. from university as a medical doctor and he went to medical school on scholarships uh, he's retired he says he says why should his older brother who's in the police force be able to retire you know and they expect they expect the doctors and everything else to work until the 80s I don't know no he says heck for that well, g- good for him and his ability to retire. I try not to think about it too but much because I'll drive myself around the bend. He, he couldn't do his... The specialty he did, he couldn't do it here in Canada. He had to go down the States. What was his specialty? When he came back, to, when he, came back he went to Edmonton, uh-huh. and they were building condominiums here. Now, his wife is a doctor also. What, what, what was his Between discipline? Two of them, they went to the bank and got a loan of money, and he bought a dozen condom, made down payments okay. on a dozen condominiums. And he says, when he retires, if he needs money, he can set one of the condominiums. It must be nice. He's smart. No, absolutely. Well, you've got to be smart to get through med school and, and smart with your money. Tim, I really do have to say goodbye, sir, but I appreciate your time. Say hello to your wife for me. No, I wouldn't, dear. Okay, fair <laughs> I'm enough. not that brave. Drop that. Okay, talk to you later. Okay. okay bye, Tim. Okay, goodbye. There we go. Let's, uh, Dave, yes or no, break first? Break it is. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number seven and Barry around the year. Hey, Paddy, how you doing? Doing okay. How about you? You must forget pausing to ask people asking you, how you doing? No, not at all. <laughs> Thanks for asking. How about you? You doing okay? Here, uh, oh, I'm doing well. Uh, I took today off. Uh, anyway, I wanted to make this call. Down around the east end of town, there's, uh, the city are putting up new signs uh, pointing out Signal Hill, Cape Spirit. are beautiful signs, nice and clean long overdue to have the old ones replaced that were falling down but anyway it's all there the rooms uh, anyway I sort of works in the tourist industry I spend a lot of time in the summer doing charters driving people on the cruises one thing or other and I'll, and I'll often ask them 
did he visit the Terry Fox statue? And they said, no, no, why, where's it to? Anyway, there's 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 no signs up pointing or promoting Terry Fox's statue. And I'm thinking that should be added to these signs because it's a very important tourist attraction. People would love to see it, but yet it's Where's Two is hid away. Where's Two is down behind the... On Water Street, behind the South Paul, down the Harbour Authority parking lot. And it's right down on the bottom, and you could walk by it and never see it. Now, last year, the, the cruise ship the world was in. I had a 10-hour charter on, the, on that ship, and I every time my bus was loaded, i come up. i said, now, anybody know where Terry Fox is? And the Americans, the, most people, other than people in Canada, don't know who he was. And I'd tell them the little story. And anyone there from Canada, he said, oh, well, we know. And then i get them to tell the story. So on the way out of the parking lot from Pier 17, within 100 feet of the stop sign, and I don't know the name of that hill down on the bottom where the, them five houses were built there, the rock houses for some fellow built for his daughter. I don't know what they're called. But anyway, it's to the left down behind the building, and I'd stop and I'd say, and I'd point at it, there it is down there. Now, that boat was in for a couple of days because of bad weather, and once I told people that it was there, it seemed like it spread around, and a lot of people visited it. And uh, the people, I'm, I would say there's people here in St. John's don't know where it's to because it's not advertising. It's a very important tourist attraction, and I'm sure people just as soon visit that than visit Cape Spear or Signal Hill. And, you know, it's uh, we, we're making a lot of money off his name and research for cancer, and I'd like for him to be remembered. And, and you know, he's, he's statue visited one thing or other. So I think the city of St. John's should add that to them signs, the new signs, nice fancy signs they're putting down around the east end, and I'd like for the tourists to find it. Well, anyway, that's all I want to say. I think it's a good idea. I mean, I've been to the uh, Terry Fox Memorial Park before. The statue was lovely. I, I've met the sculptor several times in the past. Lubin Boykoff is the man who made that Terry Fox statue. And you're right, it's hard to find uh, unless you know where it is and someone's pointing you in the right direction. It's a little bit off the beaten track. Now, it's not necessarily hidden and it's impossible to find, but you're right, there's no signs telling you how to get you there know. or where it is. So I think that's a fair idea. It is a nice spot. The Association of Terry Fox in the province, you know, dipping his leg into the water here on his way on the Marathon of Hope, of course, which ended just outside of Thunder Bay, but uh, that's a good idea, and I mean, it's just easy yeah. enough. Yeah. Easy enough Anyway, to do. I'm going to make a point to see the one in Thunder Bay, and I'm sure there are people that, in St. John's that don't know where it's to, and I'm even after stopping stopping tourists on the road, you know, I see their license plate, did you, Ontario, did you see the Terry Fox statue? They said, no, no, why, where's to? Oh, we're going to go back there right away. Anyway, thanks for your time, and uh, I don't listen to the show because uh, there's only FM on me bus, and uh, I miss it listening to it. But anyway, you have a good day. Same to you, Barry. And if you want to tune in, uh, you know, you can't make it uh, 9 or at 9 o'clock in the morning. Wherever you get a podcast, you can find Open Line these days. So just in case you wanted to check it out. Appreciate the time. Good idea. Right on. Thanks, yeah, Barry. Take bye care. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Loads of good ideas flowing here this morning. How about that? Line number two. Mark, you're on the air. Morning, Patty. How's it going? Okay. How about you? pretty good i'm just calling in today again about housing and specifically about the st john's homelessness uh acute response task force which is better known as premier's task force on housing um and i i think it's time look we've, we have not gotten anywhere we don't know what's going on we've not heard publicly 
what the you know if folks from encampments will arrive in this hotel which has really been the only solution that we've heard publicly about and I've just been going over the terms of reference of the task force over the last couple of days. Yesterday, I wrote to end homelessness to say, you know, the time has come, you guys, if you're, you know, if Doug Poss and end homelessness is concerned about uh, ending homelessness for real, it's time to leave the task force. But now, Mr. Pawson could only be there as a contributing voice because, of course, he has no authority and or money or control to actually flip switches and see homes built. So what would be satisfied by him leaving the task force? Just a symbolic gesture? Yeah, I mean, well, that, your point is absolutely 100 percent on, Patty. Like, you know, he does not have the decision making power and uh, he's he, he's not able to make those decisions. Uh, it, it's not it's not going anywhere. There are people still living in tents. It's been over 60 days since John Abbott said that they would be out of those tents and in the homes. It's it's not happening, and he's just he's camouflaging the inefficacy of of the entire task force. He's he's you know he's basically the proxy on the ground for the premier. Uh, you know, it, camouflaging and and showing and. and uh, uh, He's he's there, Patty. He's there. Sorry, I'm mixing my words this morning a little bit. I haven't had enough coffee. Um, he he's he's in the way of moving forward. It, the government needs to be just left on its own in order to deal with this. They're failing, and the public pressure that we saw in the fall, that we saw throughout Christmas, that we saw, you know, it, it's essentially dissipated. Um, but nothing has happened. Nothing has been fixed. Even even the terms reference of the task force have, have not really been been um, uh, like the principles have, have not been um, fixed, have not been worked on. Um, the, the wrap up uh, talks about um, when all persons experiencing homelessness at the encampment are supported and have freely moved to long term shelter housing solutions. But that's not happening. People are still going back there. There's a low, there's a low barrier aspect to Tent City. There's a triage aspect to Tent City. It's it's for people that uh, that can't access shelter in other ways, and it's that is not being replaced, and it's still going. And now it's time that Doug, and for that matter, for the for the mayor to to move on, to re, to recognize and tell the public that this is not working that we haven't found a solution and for us to continue to work on other solutions. Well, fair enough. You know, I knew full well that when you can strike a task force, all you like, when we're talking about things like building homes and or changing the way we monitor and enforce rules and regulations at shelters, what have you, I knew this was going to take some time, which was time that we did not have. And it's amazing to me that all of a sudden we're pretending that this is something new that just happened because of, I don't know, the pandemic. Because 
housing and the lack of and the issue of homelessness around the precipice of homelessness has been the reality in this province and across the country forever and a day. So we're just catching up and it's, you know, I think in this province, if it wasn't for the fact that someone had the idea to pitch a tent across from Confederation Building, we'd still be just spinning our wheels. That really symbolic presence of the tents across from the House of the Home of Government, I think really spurred on more conversation. I'll add to it that, you know, for starters, the way we use emergency shelters is, is ridiculous. And secondly, here we are, we're, we're told that people will be able to use the transition home, that is the Comfort Inn, in March. Today's the second last day of February. We don't even know what eligibility or criteria or vetting even looks like here. We're not even entirely sure about the sum of the entire cost. We're not really sure what the presence of healthcare professionals on site will be. We think it's going to be you know, one person to talk about physical health, one social worker, someone, one person dealing with mental health, one person dealing with addictions. And that's... That doesn't really sound like the wraparound support that, you know, you would think would be involved with 140 people living temporarily, we hope, at the Comfort Inn. So I'll give you the final thought, Mark. Go ahead. Well, I mean, it's just it's gone on long enough. I mean, like this was we we had, you know, government and the city both had the opportunity to provide mid mid and long term solutions. No, we're not going to build homes in five days. You know, we're not going to build homes in in a week. It's not going to happen. There's other solutions. But even within those other solutions, Patty, there is nothing going on at Tent City different than what was going on a year and a half ago to address homelessness. So there are no – the the government has not committed to more ACT, FACT, and NAVNET teams. We're not seeing the mental health supports. None of these things are happening. So, I mean, at, at what point can the mayor and Doug remain on this task force – and cover up the fact that the government has completely failed. And, and I think that time has come, and I think it's time for Doug specifically to step out of there. And I hope the board members of, of and homeless the St. John's are listening and, and uh, can have a chat with him and say, you know, time has come. I appreciate your time, Mark. Thanks for doing it. Thanks, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, we'll try to get back on track here with the breaks. So when we come back, we're talking farming, pink shirt day, NL housing, whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Just a quick reminder, I meant to say it off the top. If you have sent me an email since Friday at 12 noon, I came back today to see literally hundreds. So if you need or want me to see it today, please resend it. That'll make my life easier, if you don't mind. Let's go to line number five. Everett, you're on the air. Hello? Hello, Everett. <laughs> I wasn't sure. I got a beep in the mirror when you, when you said my name, so I didn't, I didn't get it. No worries. You're uh, on the air. I, you know, I, I'm here this morning to talk about... Uh, what something that affects every person alive, and that's food supply. I don't know, are you, are you aware of what's going on over in Europe with the farmers? Yeah, I see some of it. Yeah, yeah I've seen a little bit on, on television, but nothing like what's going on over there. I have a friend over over in, uh, in uh, the Netherlands, and that's where it started over there about a year or two ago, where uh, the government of the day over there decided that... Uh, they wanted to put 3,000 farmers out of business. So they've, they've forced them to sell their, sell their land to them. And they said the main reason they wanted the land was to build houses for the immigrants that were coming in. But now since that is after spreading right across to every country in Europe. And uh, I don't know that all the details of, of what they're trying to force farmers to do or not to do. But from what I can understand is they want farmers to get rid of their cows 
Well, there's a few things uh, at play, and there's some different issues in different parts of Europe as to why we see some of the protests. Some of it has to do with the trade deal between the EU and South America. So that that trade block is called Mer- Mercosur, and yeah. so the worry there is unfair competition, and so that's the root for some of the uh, uh, protests. For instance, in France, then there's some other issues with fertilizer restrictions. I think that's what spurred on the Belgian initial protest. Then you're right. Some of it is about uh, expropriating potentially farmland for a variety of things, including housing. So I think there's not just one link between all the protests. There's different factors in different countries, but there are, of course, going to be some overlaps. Yeah, well, uh, like I say, uh, I don't know why the, the bushes get rid of cows, because, I mean, cows produce milk, they produce meat, you know, so uh, that's that's a food supply. But in the meantime, of course, you you got uh, the Bill Gates of the world that are, are coming up with uh, artificial meat and artificial butter, artificial milk, made out of plant food. So, uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> a cow produces milk by eating grass. So I don't know how they can, they can produce milk, you know, through plants and or meat even, you know, without uh, using a lot of chemicals. Yeah, I mean, the issue regarding cows, now I think some of the way it's overstated that everyone's trying to get rid of all the cows, I I don't think that's actually what's happening. And the fact of the matter is, lab-borne meats and stuff have not worked. People aren't buying it. And that's going to be the be-all and end-all, because if if no one's buying it, no one's going to be making it. So one of the issues that I think we don't talk about when we talk about methane and or cows and or burps and farts is their diet. So you say they eat grass, you're 100% right, but there's all sorts of work being done out there with, you know, uh, adopting some seaweed into their diet as well. Because I don't think the cow is going to care a whole, whole lot as long as he or she is full. So... Anyway, the, I don't think there's a, you know, Bill Gates is not trying to get rid of all the cows. Bill Gates is trying to make money. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And one way to make money, of course, if, if uh, what he's producing and you can't get it the real thing, then you got to buy what, what he's producing. So, uh, you know, I mean, I've seen ads on, on television now that the last one to start is, is butter. So we don't need the cow. I mean, that's part of their ad, right? So what uh, the... I did hear that uh, I mean, it was in 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 the UK. That the farmers were told to to kill off up to a million cows. Now I don't know. That seems to be an awful lot of cows. But I mean, if you kill off that many cows, and that's going to be a shortage of food supply somewhere around the way. There's somewhere in the neighborhood of a billion cows in the world. Yeah. Well, <laughs> a million might seem very much compared to a billion, but. Uh, but you know, it, but that's just a start, right? Now you talk, you talk about the uh, um, the fertilizer re- reduction. Well, I mean, in, here in Canada, so far, I mean, we all know that the, the price of food has been escalating pretty pretty fast. But I think I think we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg. Well, some of the input costs will come back to earth a little bit, though. Some of the input costs that the farmers were pointing to, for instance, the price of fertilizer, has come back to earth. It's nowhere near where it was at its peak last year, or the year before. Well, the fertilizer cost. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah. Well, I don't know what it is for this year. We haven't ordered our fertilizer, but uh, but you know when when uh, the, you know uh, the prime minister of our country t- tells farmers to cut back thirty percent on the use of fertilizer. I mean, farmers are, you know they're not going to use more fertilizer than they need to give them a, give them a, a bumper crop, let's say. 
So if you cut back 30% on, on fertilizers, you're cutting back 30% on your production. Yeah, so no one, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, if you're the farmer here, no one's been told that you have to use 30% less. There's yet. All of this at this current moment in time is optional, am I right? Yeah, okay. yeah. It, but you know, uh, when, when the farmers don't pick up on it, it's going to be forced on them. And then, you know, uh, like I say, you cut back 30% uh, on your fertilizer use, you're cutting back 30% on your production. This is a question that comes from ignorance. Are there options for the traditional fertilizer that you've been using? You know, maybe some of the things that are used in more organic type farms. So are, are there options out there available, for instance, like manure or anything else? Well, again, you have manure, you've got to have cattle. <laughs> or whatever type of manure, chickens yeah. or otherwise, yeah. Well, I, I know years ago, first when we started farming, uh, the, the fish plants here in Newfoundland, I mean, used to be a lot of wasties, right? Yeah, they're awful. Awful, yeah. You know? And, and uh, so they... Somewhere around the way, they decided to turn it into fertilizer. So, I mean, uh, as a farmer, of course, we you know, buy local fer- fertilizer and all this, but we couldn't buy it. It was contracted at somewhere down the States. The whole, whatever they produced went to the States. Oh. So, you know, uh, <laughs> so that we still had, had to go back to our, our regular fertilizer. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, the, the, to me, this, it, it don't make sense. I mean, for, like I said, there's two main people that produce 85% of the food that's consumed in the world. That's farmers and fishermen. Sure. I, mean, I would say nature probably produces about 15% and people that grow their own, you know, stuff like that. So if if, uh, if they push farmers out of business or make it so costly to do business, I mean, it's going to drive the price of food up. And I think there's going to be a lot more starvation in the world. Because a lot of what we produce in, in Canada, and, and that ends up going in, in, you know, to poorer countries that are probably not producing enough food for, them, for themselves. Right? So if, if you've got to cut back on your production here, well, we might not starve to death, but someone in the world is going to suffer for it. Yeah, f- fair enough. I mean, I try to talk about agriculture here in the province and the reduction in the number of farms, the amount of production that actually takes place here. When I think we've kind of undershot the numbers uh, recently, you know, the whole thought that we import 90 of what we consume, which is, I think, just inside big retailers, big grocery stores, not the reality for how much food is actually produced. Uh, Everett, I appreciate the time. Anything else you want to say? Yeah, well, I know that bit is what I see on worldwide, right? But locally... Well, like I said, I, I started farming back in, uh, I think it was 1970, 1971. Are you the farmer from up around Woodland? Yeah. Okay. Wooddale. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and, and uh, well, at that time, we, we had a railway. <laughs> but we had, the government of Newfoundland then had very little money, you know, coming in. Because they were, you know, we, we never had oil then. That started, you know, and, and the fishery was the main reason we're here, I guess. But uh, anyway, when we had uh, a railway, and I, I, I don't know how we are at the mercy of farmers on the mainland when it comes to, uh, you know, price-wise. They determine what we're going to sell for, practically. And uh, so anyway, the, back then, when we started here in Woodville first, I mean, new land, you're not supposed to grow potatoes in new land because you're... you're but you'll end up with a disease called Rizantoni. And uh, you, they recommend growing turnips first, okay? 
So uh, farmers there, because we put out so many acres of turnips, a lot more was going to be consumed there in, in Central. So anyway, we were going on the ship a carload of turnips to St. John's. And we checked on the price, and we found out that PEI could send a carload of turnips to, to St. John's, and with half the price would cost us from Bishop Falls to St. John's. So now, was somebody subsi- you know, subsidizing the, the freight cost or what? Sounds like it. And sounds like it to me. So I'm wondering if that's, that's not still going on. Well, the government of PEI does subsidize the potato industry. That is for sure. That much we know. Yeah, but, you know, when they do that, then, you know, it gives them another advantage over, over Newfoundland farmers, right? Of course it does. Uh, Everett, I appreciate you making time for the program. we got to get to the newscast. Stay in touch. Okay. All the best. Anyway, I may call you back someday because, you know, there's a lot more I'd like to say. Sure. And we can do exactly that. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. So it is indeed time for the news. Those of you in the queue, stay right there. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Very quickly, before we get to uh, Ed on line number three, I want to say happy birthday to Tony Pennell. Tony's only 11, but she likes tuning into the show with her dad, Stephen. So happy birthday to you, Tony. Hope you have a tremendous day. Let's go to line number three. Ed, you are on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? I'm doing grand. How about you? Good, thank you. Good. Good. I'd like to uh, talk about uh, Newfoundland housing. I have a family member that applied for Newfoundland housing in the neighborhood of six years ago. They did show him some units at that time, but uh, they weren't suitable for him and his family. So they went and rented a property, and they're still renting that property. But in the last few weeks, Newfoundland housing called and approached them and told them that they would give them $300 a month toward their rent, but they would have to give up their position on the list. Like, it really don't make sense to what Northland Housing are doing. They're, this individual has been paying rent for six years, and now Northland Housing is going to give them $300 to offset their rent. Yeah, they're basically trying to address the wait list for units by doing things like that. I, last time I remember seeing a number, there was something like 2,200 people on the wait list. But are they going to give 2,200 people $300 a month to get their names off the list? No. What, what, what are they doing? I don't know, and I don't know how they selectively choose which families or people to offer some rent subsidy to, but that's not the first time I've heard this story. No, it's 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 uh, it's crazy for me. Like that's fine for the individual who's getting three hundred dollars a month. That's that's good. I got no problem with that. But uh, accept whatever you can get. But uh, for the government to do something like that, it's the same as with them. The the health care that they're going on with the nurses, the, the millions of dollars that they spent on that. Like they seem to be throwing money at everything, and they're getting further and further behind. And as we have uh, seen and understood. If we're just talking healthcare, for instance, population of about 535,000 people or thereabouts, and we're spending about $4 billion on healthcare per year. If money was the only issue, we'd have it licked, but apparently not. Yeah, yeah. Crazy, eh? It is. So what has this uh, family member of yours decided to do? Accept the rent subsidy or remain on the list? Why wouldn't it? (laughs) Oh, fair enough. That's what I would do. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) And what are they paying for rent? Like, what kind of unit are they renting? They're renting a house. Okay. They're paying, I don't know, $1,100 a month or whatever. They've been renting this now for, I don't know, 
five or six years or something. But uh, basically, this is cash for life. They're so, paying them back money for four months. They're paying back to December, so it's December, January, February. You know, it's up to 1st of March. They're going to start paying, so they're going to pay them four months back money. And uh, there's no time limit, so it looks like it's cash for life. So there's no ongoing need to update uh, whether or not they're still renting or they're changing rentals or they've bought no. their own home, so it's just here's 300 bucks a month. There's nothing in the application that he filled out stating that all they wanted in the application is basically his bank information so they could deposit the money into his bank account hmm. and uh, there's no time limit so it's like it's cash for life strange set of circumstances no strings attached yeah it's uh, i don't know it's uh, it's uh, another way of the government throwing money at something to, uh, like you said, to try to eliminate or decrease the the number of people that are on the waiting list. But uh, like you said, they got 2,200 people, 22,000 people on the list. Are they going to give everybody $300 a month? Uh, you know, <laughs> well, it's a fair question. And once again, I don't know how they pick the people who are being made these types of offers. I know they brought more and more units back online that were shuttered for renos or. Mm. renovations but you know we we just have lost our way with housing and that's not just the conversation in this province the country has lost its way the country has lost its way yes yeah. 100% uh, Ed I appreciate the time we'll see if we can get the NL uh, Newfoundland Labrador Housing Corporation to give us some idea about how they're picking the people who are making the, getting these offers how many offers are planning to be made or have been made I'd be curious to find that out now yes for sure I appreciate the time sir Oh, thank you for the time. Anytime, Ed. Stay in touch. Take care. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Yeah, let's see if we get housing on, Dave, because that's an interesting one. We can get updates regarding the number of units that were closed, the pace with which they're being reopened, the wait list, the rent subsidy offers. So that's some good stuff in there. Let's go to line number six. Trina, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Doing grand. How about you? Good, thanks. I wanted to call and uh, have a conversation today about Pink Shirt Day. Um, I know that uh, schools are having, um, I've got some text messages this morning from my kids' schools where they're having activities around Kindness Day. But, you know, I think it's really important to have a conversation and um, just to ask that, you know, maybe this evening as people are sitting around their dinner tables that uh, they consider this as part of the conversation. We, uh, as, as I know you know, I'm a counselor here in the town of Torbay, and have we've talked about this many times in the past. I've called about the work that I've done with the Federation of Key Municipalities around, um, you know, bullying and harassment and conversations that we've had about it right across the country. And we've also talked about Lions Quest and, you know, work that the uh, Lions have been doing to try to get into the school systems around providing that support. And uh, I know as a community leader, you know, and a, a person, a, a mom, you know, a, a human in the community, uh, you know, this is something that we deal with all the time. And I'm not calling in my capacity today as a counselor. I'm calling as an individual, an individual. But I really want to make sure that, you know, at, at, you know, today on Pink Shirt Day, that this is something that we are talking about on your show, that we're talking about in our schools, that we're talking about in our communities, and we're talking about in our homes with our families. And the other thing, Patty, if I could, I just wanted to share, you know, there's a lot of resources that are out there. I know that I've heard in my own community people talking about 
you know, concerns about bullying and harassment. And I've only recently learned that the RNC has their community services department, and you can speak with them and talk to them about, you know, having presentations in the schools and in communities and spaces. So I will be after that and, and looking at where to from there and what I can do with it. I know that the Red Cross has uh, Beyond the Hurt as uh, one of their programs, like we've talked about in the Pastors Lions Quest. And there's information I found this morning as I was Googling around, you know, the Canadian Occupational Health and Safety uh, information that they have online that's free. There's also, a, a, you know, there's groups all over the place providing resources and support. So just, uh, just was looking for a few minutes today to make sure that people are thinking about this to have the conversation and talk about the importance of pausing today, making space and having this conversation. Fair enough. Uh the one area that I think is probably the most important, we can talk about it in the schools, we can wear pink shirts, we can have awareness campaigns and poster campaigns and essay writing and what have you, but unless families are willing to be honest with themselves about who their child is and how he or she behaves when the parents aren't looking, if we don't have the conversations at home, we're never going to get anywhere. Never. Ever. Because, you know, what has changed since I was a school-aged child, if the principal or VP called home and said, Patty was bad boy today. I was in trouble, period. Now, the pendulum has swung the exact opposite of that. Is now, how dare you say that my son or daughter is being bad at school, right? So we just got to change our tune. Not every child is perfect. Some, some might have just days where it gets away from them and they, they do something to hurt emotionally or physically a fellow classmate. Some are at it all the time. But, you know, we just have to be honest. And you, you cannot be encouraging and or shielding your child from being taken into account if they are indeed disruptive in school, if they are lashing out physically in school. I mean, they don't, for starters, not only is it bad parenting, you're setting your child up. That child is going to have a difficult time thriving if and when he or she is ostracized by the rest of the school community because they're a nuisance and they're violent and they're mean. So if it doesn't start at home, we can wear pink shirts or rainbow shirts all day long every day. If it doesn't get dealt with at the kitchen table, we're just swimming upstream. I absolutely agree, Patty, and that's the reason why I wanted to call today, because my ask and my hope is that when people are home this evening, you know, or this afternoon or whenever they get the time, they sit down and have this conversation, you know, with their kids, with their families, with their partners, you know, with their friends. I mean, this is this is an important conversation, and it absolutely starts at home. And people will call me and say, what are you doing as a municipal councillor to address these issues and oftentimes you know it's part of the conversation around awareness and looking at yourself and listen I was a kid at one point I'm a human being we all make mistakes and we learn from them and you know I'm, I've been known to and didn't actually our last public council meeting put my hand up and said I made a mistake I own it let's move on from here it's important to do that self-reflection, to think about what am I contributing in this space? What is happening here? What can I do? And I fully agree with you. I think that, you know, the solution to addressing bullying and harassment is not wearing a pink shirt, but it's actually doing that self-reflection and understanding what role do I as a person, as a human, have in this community, in this space to walk the talk, show people how to live with compassion and kindness, and make sure that we have space for inclusion in, in our communities. And I firmly believe, Patty, that hurt people hurt people. And so, you know, if somebody is lashing in, if they're having a hard time, what is behind that? You know, how do we help these children, these people, these families? 
and, you know, get the right supports in place so we can have these conversations. And we've come a far away in opening safe spaces to have these conversations in, in years. But we've also now have the addition of online, you know, abilities for people to reach out, connect, and for that harassment to continue in a way it never did before. So for me personally, this is a very important conversation. This is something that I will be speaking with my family and my friends and my community about today. And I just wanted to make sure that, you know, we had a chance today and for all the listeners out there, hopefully they take that action item, they bring it home today. And not just today, many days have the conversation about how do we do our part to make a better and safer community across the board and know that those resources are there and you can reach out you can reach out as an individual if you're concerned about uh, bullying and harassment or any of these things that you're in your space you have the right and can dial the number you know at the RNC the 729-8000 and ask for help and support so it's not just a school that has to drive it or just a community you know there are people who can take action in responsible ways and and make differences as well so that's kind of what I was hoping to share and thank you I really appreciate your time today to talk about this I appreciate yours Serena thanks for the call all right. Take care, Patty. Have you a too. good one. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. And you know, I talk about the issue regarding chronically absent from school. Some 10% was the last number we saw in a report brought forward by the Child Youth Advocate. So you wonder how many of that 10% are not in school because of bullying. Or how many children are at school today, when they got up this morning, they were deathly afraid and absolutely did not want to go to school. But, of course, mom or dad or the caregiver ensured they made their way to school. I'd be curious to know, you know, because that's some of the things that Jackie Lake Kavanaugh pointed out. We don't even know why people are absent. You know, maybe some schools do better jobs than others. But if we don't know why you're absent, then we can't do much about it. Whether it be transportation issue, whether it be a bullying issue, whether it be some issues regarding poverty in the home, whether it be domestic violence related matters, like who knows? That's why it's not just a Department of Education issue. It's all of the aforementioned issues and the responsible ministers, to, you know, to understand what their role is in dealing with that. Why do I think that's a big idea, uh, a big deal? Because... 75% who were chronically absent in grade 6 don't graduate high school. It's becoming more and more difficult to make a real life for yourself, meaningful, gainful employment without a high school education. So that's why I think it matters. Let's take a break. Appreciate the patients, both Sam and Janet. Sam wants to talk about municipal services and drinking water. Janet's here to talk about tax incentives. Don't go away. Back to the show. Let's go. Line number four. Sam, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing? Doing okay. Thanks. You? Good, good. It's a little wet out here today. We're getting some rain and we got some wind coming. Pretty pleasant day here in town. Apparently going to be up to 10 degrees, maybe with a bit of rain. But anyway, there you go. Not bad for February 28th. What's on your mind, Sam? Yes, the reason why I'm calling that uh, we got bad water here in our community. I live in the community of a, where I live a part of Shipco, but I'm not in the, in the municipality local service district. I'm part of Piccadilly local service district, and they don't really make sense. And our water has been bad now as quite a long time and we got lead with the water and you've seen the videos it's the water is brown most of the time and uh, the water is uh, we don't even know if it's safe to shower with or or to wash or clothes with or bathe or something because it's nothing nobody wants to help us we mean i contact uh, municipal affairs i contact local service district representatives i contact our mha tony wakeham and uh, and nobody seems to be uh, cares about it, or nobody's acting on anything that we bought a concern that we we even put up a petition to uh, separate from Piccadilly Local Service District to uh, to Minister Hanging and everybody that lived in Abrams Grove and at this part of Ship Grove signed it, 
and Minister Hagee refused it and said, no, we're not going to let you uh, join with Ship Cove. You can stay where you are. If not, we're going to join the whole community, Piccadilly and Westby together with Ship Cove. Regionalization, more or less. And we're not interested in regionalization. We want to join with Ship Cove because we're not getting the service we need. we got a welder who's over 50 years old. And nobody's helping us here, but the, nobody. We, I mean, the water, what can we do? So why isn't it just being tested? So is, it be, is there not rules for local service districts? Because there is for municipalities, incorporated well, there ones. There is rules. It's being tested, yes. But, I mean, there's like we, we need, basically, with the well is over 50 years old, it needs to be a new well drilled. And we don't know what's going on with the money that's been collected from us. The only thing, basically, the service we do get is a garbage pickup. And that's not a garbage annual cleanup. It's just a regular garbage pickup. So, you mean, whatever is bigger than uh, than a, I guess, a microwave gets tossed into the country or something like that, like littering all over the place. But clear that, everything, I mean, we don't get really anything here. And we're trying to uh, to get help. I tried, I reached out to uh, me and a few community members, reached out to Tony Wakem for to have a meeting on this area and we're still waiting for uh, a date and a phone call back to have a meeting to deal with these issues. He's well aware of these issues and uh, and the so is the municipal affairs and their dis- municipal affairs don't really give two hells about us and uh, and so where we're left to, I mean, all the people needs help here and you have a copy of the petition, I send it to you yep. and the letter that we uh, added and was stamped by an older and, and you mean, we even had elders in the community to uh, to sign that we were a part of this community for so many years but you mean, we need to separate from Piccadilly and West because we are really a partnership goal and Abraham's goal wants to connect as well and we could probably get better served a little better if we were part of a community that we're related to and it was at our border rather than go in the opposite direction, right? Okay, Sam, so there's concerns with whether it be lead or whatever you're concerned with uh, what the water might be like. But So if you say it's being tested, what are the results of the test? There's lead traces in the test. And uh, we got, uh, we, were, I mean, we were told there's lead traces. There was a, stat, uh, a letter put up on the, our pump post by uh, Piccadilly Local Service District and says that our water is not, hu- is not fit for human consumption. And those test results, I had a copy of it here. I don't know where it is, but I do have a copy of it somewhere. And it shows that we had lead into it and traces of uh, different types of E. coli, two types of E. coli. So, but there was nothing, I mean, we get a test and, but there's, there's no results. Like I said, there's no results. I mean, they're well aware of it and there's nothing being done. So the purpose of the information you shared and the call this morning is that you know that it's been deemed unfit for human consumption. So it's where, where and what the next steps are, right? Well, what we do now, we, 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 we travel 35 kilometers to get water for drinking in bottles. As you can see, I send you pictures. That's what we do. Yeah. And uh, most of the peninsula out here, the water is not fit to drink anyway. And that's been going on for a number of years. And uh, so anyway, but that's what we're doing. And we uh, requested to uh, to get well drilled and a new well drilled, and uh, nobody cares. Oh, the, the local service district. I mean, they've been collecting money for years, and it says he has no money. Well, where's the money going? Who's who's monitoring us here? Why don't we have uh, public consultations of what what's going on? There's nothing going on. I mean, I can show up a bunch of phony receipts or whatever, right? But I mean, there's nothing. We don't see anything here, and we're not we're being neglected because we live on this part of the community, and. Uh, and we should be given a priority, equal rights as the rest of like Piccadilly or West Bay, right? I mean, we are we all we all pay, and we need water. I mean, 
That's all I can say. You mean, I don't know what else to do. You mean, I contacted people and I written letters and so did, I got the support of the people. And also the local service district, uh, the ship club was willing to take us with open arms. But as our, as our Minister Hagee says, we're not going to support it. So, and our water, our water, you mean, we got no water here. We got no good drinking water. So there's nobody, there's no way that we can get any improvements to get it done. And there's no money, that's what they're saying, for to get it done. So we're left, left on our own, basically. Drill your own will if you got a problem. That's basically what they're telling you. I mean, does, thousands of dollars. Does anybody have any idea what it would cost to drill a new well to supply the entire community? Well, for the drill, the well, for about probably about maybe doing 70 or 80 homes, probably you're looking at probably about, uh, I don't know, I'm saying. Thirty to fifty thousand, and so there's nobody who's at the helm of the LSD that can give you any accounting of how much money's been collected and how it's being spent. I mean, that's no, there's not an nothing. audited financial statement. Nothing. Don't even see a financial statement. You don't see nothing. Zero. Right. Wow. We're just left in the dark there. I mean, you ask questions, you're considered a troublemaker, right? Well, yeah, I wouldn't let anyone make me feel like a troublemaker for asking how my money's being spent. I wouldn't yeah. care what they thought. I asked them, and they just, they'll give you a speech. You just get a speech all the time. Well, it's this and that and all this and all this stuff, right? Or well, spent here and it's spent there. Well, what's spent in our community? Well, we got your spare well, but yet the spare uh, pump, I'm sorry. And where's the spare pump? It's not here somewhere else in another community we, we was the money was lotted out for here is not here it's being lotted out somewhere else so we're we're definitely getting nothing or zero support here from anywhere from anybody and we want mr tony wakeham to help us he's our he's a pc representative and he's also he's our mha we're asking for his help to get something done but our water have you heard back from his office yeah we i was to his office i called and we're still waiting because being a few members want to go down and around people from the community here wants to go down and meet with them and we're still waiting for a call well keep me in the loop if anything changes send along whatever you have sam i haven't had a chance to look at everything you sent me this morning because it was quite a bit but i will yes i mean it's uh you mean you only could do so much and you only could try so much and i feel that myself and the people here in abraham's Gulf and this part of ship Gulf is being ignored by the local service district of Piccadilly, and by our MHAR government, and Minister Hagee, as, as you're aware, he, he, the letter I sent to you, he's do not support ours to, to join with Shippo. So he basically, no, you stay as it is, do what you are doing already. So he thinks it's okay the way things are already, unless you're going to join all the communities. And we don't want to do that. We want to join with another community. And the other people that's in the other area, Piccadilly and Westby, has nothing to do with that petition because they don't live here. Got it. Uh, I'll follow up with the minister's office. I'll read the uh, information that you sent me, Sam, and I appreciate the time. Let me know if you make any headway. You bet. Thank you very much. You have yourself a good day, Patty. You too, Sam. Take care. Be safe. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's get another one before we get to the break. Uh, line number eight. Janet, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Top shelf. You? You know, I swore I wasn't going to ask you how you are, because <laughs> I know. <laughs> but I did it anyway. No I worries. can't help it. And, you know, i got to say, it seems an odd thing that I would be calling about tax incentives. I mean, it's such a boring thing until you really think about the long-term implications. I I heard the question of the day and uh, called and responded to it. And, I, you know, 
don't want you to take this the wrong way, Patty, but it's not really you that I want to speak with. I want to speak with everyone else that's listening at the moment, if that's all right. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but go ahead. Okay. What I want to say is, listen, without advertising, we are at risk of losing not just the show you're listening to, but we're at risk of losing AM radio because they depend on the revenue from advertising to stay on the air. And I think that I'm personally almost 60 years old, so I've lived a long time. And my faith has been shaken in a lot of institutions within the last few years. You think about homelessness and the state of medical care, the glacial pace of the legal system. There's just so many problems. And without VOCM, I don't think we'd hear a lot about it. The other thing is, I don't believe that as residents, we'd have the opportunity to call shows like this and express ourselves and have a place to be heard. You know, we have a government that seems so complacent, so deaf and blind to what's really happening on the ground. And I really do value the opportunity that VOCM gives us all to express our fears or our outrage or our joy. And I honestly believe we got up in the morning and turned radio and Jerry Lynn and Ben and all the Bryans and Patty and Linda and Claudette, you guys weren't there, I believe they would all be sadly missed. So I really want to issue a challenge to those of you that are still tolerant enough to keep listening to me. And that challenge is call your NHA. Tell them that you absolutely support these tax incentives. Let's keep AM radio protected. We rely on you. And if we can help do this, we're only helping ourselves. And I guess that's all I wanted to say, Patty. I I appreciate the time. I'll I'll just very quickly say, you know, all of this type of conversation is way above my pay grade when it comes to Stingray and other media companies talk about tax incentives. I think one of the important things that they make in their plea is for X percentage of government spending for advertising to be done in small market stuff, which Mm. just makes sense to me. Look, the whole concept of the federal government, you know, putting the hundreds of millions of dollars into media has kind of backfired because now everything is apparently bought and paid for, which is kind of ridiculous and pathetic. It's a bit of a lazy way to talk about uh, how important small market media is because Mm -hmm. we've got, if you want a further conglomeration of media, we're asking for all the wrong things, in my personal opinion. I mean, we've got huge American money invested in some of the major media outlets here in this country. We know the amount of money that flows, for instance, to the public broadcaster. But small market media, if that goes away, the stories that you think are important to you in your day-to-day lives, what's happening in the court, what's happening at municipal council, what's happening with local issues, all of a sudden, they'll be impossible to find. So I get why people think if your business model doesn't work uh, based on standing on on your own two feet away you go. But that's, again, just a little bit too lazy. Some things are important. The shoreline is important. It's an important newspaper. I picked it up the other day at Sobeys and read it. Excellent quality stuff talking about local issues. If stations like this go away, there's a lot of things that you're told about that are going to be harder and harder to find. Um, the cl- you know, let's face it. There's a lot of institutions that we just we, we just take advantage of. That we just assume they're always going to be there. And I think we've all had our faith shaken in a great deal of those. 
And I really honestly believe that small market media, without it, we're not hearing. We're not hearing what's relevant to us. You know what I'm. You know what I mean. We're hearing about what's happening globally, or which is all, which is fantastic and important. But I really believe that you would miss turning on the dial and hearing what's happening here. I think we'd be lost without it. And it's a reciprocal relationship. We're learning from you, and we're also, like I said, having the opportunity to be heard ourselves in a place where, you know, we rarely get to these days. So I'm not a business person. I don't know anything about taxes, but I I do recognize and value AM radio for what it is. And And if there's anything that I can do at all to, you know, preserve it, then I'm going to do it. And if it's as simple as making a phone call, then everyone that's listening here this morning should just do that. That's my challenge. It's just a phone call to keep the lines open because they go both ways. That's right. It's a uh, it's reciprocal. I think that's the proper word. I uh, appreciate your time, and uh, thanks for doing this this morning, Janet. Oh, absolutely, and thank you guys for doing what you do. Happy so to do come it. on, everybody, call your MHA. Let's keep it going. Thanks for this. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You know, again, the whole business model conversation, sometimes oversimplified. The fact of the matter is the competition with the new advent of media and how it works and how it's financed or funded has just changed dramatically. And I think companies like this have tried to change with the times and make sure that we can be as as self-reliant. And of course, I'm not in those meetings. I have no idea how those conversations look. But if you're talking about the amount of advertising revenue that goes to the big tech giants, I mean, it's insurmountable. How can you compete, right, in, in realistic terms? We're lucky enough to have a nice stable of uh, faithful advertisers here on this station. As far as I know, it's our sole source of revenue. Uh, th- that's as far as I know, anyway. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, the, uh, the mayor Trapassi is reading the panel. She's in the queue. The breakwater, gone again. Amy Richards wants to talk about medically fragile children. And Cynthia, with coverage. don't go away. Welcome back to the program. <clears throat> Let's go to uh, line number two. Amy, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? I'm doing okay. Thanks for asking. How about you? Pretty good. Thanks. So I'm calling about a report that I released last Friday, and I just wanted to provide some uh, of the information that's in it. So the report was released uh, to government. I sent it to media and released on social media and that as well. And it's about um, the experiences that parents of medically fragile children in this province have been having with the Special Child Welfare Program. So the Special Child Welfare Program is um, the program where, the government program where they can access um, respite services and medical care. So for parents of medically fragile children, this is where they get most of their government support um, and I, I wanted to make sure I lay out exactly what I, mean, what I mean by medically fragile because there's there's quite a spectrum when it comes to disabilities and the parents that I spoke with um, about this report and their information is contained in it um, their children are severely severely disabled most of these children are not going to make it to adulthood. They are um, have very, very complex needs. 
Most of them um, are nonverbal. They they cannot sit, stand, um, eat, talk. It's it's very very um, severe for these children and for their families. Um, I was conducting research on these parents for my master's work at university, which is a little bit of a different project. But when I was interviewing parents, one of the things that I would ask them, because I really wanted to understand their situation through their eyes. So one of the things that I would ask them was, tell me about, tell me the worst thing about parenting your child. And a lot of the parents told me the worst thing about having to deal with all the things that they have to deal with as parents of these children is trying to access support from the government. And that was pretty mind-blowing for me. I, I figured it was going to be, you know, having to deal with mortality or something like that. But no, it was trying to get support from the government. So when I heard that, I said, this needs to be written up into a report for government. They need to understand how these parents feel um, with accessing support through this program. And I released it last week because um, I learned that they are in the process of making changes to the program right now. And one of the things that they're, they're doing is they are bringing in an assessment tool that will be um, how they determine uh, respite care support services for families. I mean, there's, you know, in Bradley Moss's report, which was called By a Thread, if I remember correctly, you know, one family reported paying $35,000 a year for respite care. There was another story I remember reading from Mr. Moss where a a social worker told the parents to get divorced so they can qualify for social assistance. So there were some 12 recommendations that came from his report. So how does the research you've done and the report you've compiled add to or differ from Mr. Moss's, who's the citizen's representative, his report? I think it adds some additional voices, some deeper sort of understanding um, that is, is missing from the Office of the Citizens Representative report. I think it um, piggybacks a lot of their recommendations very, very well as well. And I think it also adds something new, and that is um, the current lack of understanding that um, SCWA has about uh, these parents' experiences. And that's because so much of what's being done right now is sort of being done under the radar. So even if, you know, even them going by the information that they have in their system, they don't have an accurate record of what's going on to make changes to the system right now. And a really good example of that is overnight respite care. So SCWA will not provide overnight respite care for medically fragile children, regardless of what they may need overnight. But social workers will, like SCWA social workers, they will say, I'll give you the number of hours. I'm just not going to ask you what time of day they're being used. So they're making changes to the system. You know, thinking, for example, no children have overnight respite care, but they do just off the record. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, 
I I do have. I'm pretty sure I have your report in my email inbox, and yep. I will have a look at it. As I said, you know, I was away for four days, so I really am behind in the email work. I'm going to have to clean some of that up. So I'll find yours and add it to my reading, like I have. When I I did read by a thread from uh, Mr. Moss, and I know you were involved as both a parent and a researcher in that project as well. So uh-huh. I will add both of them together. You know, there were some interesting recommendations regarding caregiving, respite care, and otherwise. Talking about, I believe the words he was using is to uh, caregiver recognition or something and codify what it means for those who look after their loved ones and so you know that would only be complementary to overnight respite care and you know qualifications for one pot of money or another because I mean the burden emotionally mentally financially is very real if you haven't read his report and he also goes on to say and correct me if I'm wrong is that he's talked about this problem becoming even I don't know if problem's the right word. Yeah, I guess it is. It's going to be more and more families in this predicament within the next 10 years. The programs are falling short. People don't understand the information about what is actually available out there. And you add that financial burden to what must be devastating emotionally and mentally. Uh, I I really don't know how you and others have been able to find your way through it, but it's extraordinary stuff. So uh, would would you like me to share your report with anybody, including... You know, some folks who have written me with very similar uh, family concerns? Absolutely. You you have full permission to share that. I also sent out some additional infographics the day after I sent the report that highlights, you know, a quick overview of, of the findings, the recommendations, some things that parents said. So, yeah, I think it's... Amy, uh, if someone wants to connect with you, uh, would you like to share your email address or something live over the air? Absolutely. Go ahead. So my email is zad, like zebra, 99AFR, as in Amy Florence Richards, at mun.ca, M-U-N. And, of course, I have that address available, too, if you didn't have a chance to jot it down. If you want to send me an email, I will send along what I have on behalf of Amy. Uh, I really appreciate you making time this morning, Amy. Thank you very much. I appreciate you making time for me as well. Uh, Dave Williams wants me to put you on hold. I think the newsroom might want some additional information. So I'll put you on hold. You'll speak with David. Okay, let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the Mayor Trapassi. That's Rita Pennell. Mayor Pennell, you're on the air. Good morning, sir. Good morning to you. Welcome back to the show. I just want to talk to you about the breakwater. Yep. Uh, on the 15th, we got the word again about uh, where where they put up the new uh, sticks and everything, uh, they're all gone, same as it happened in 2021. And we waited for two years to get it done, and now it's gone again. And the road now, where the water line goes to, like, 25 homes on the lower coast, is open to the ocean. Uh, and that's our biggest problem right now, is uh, saving our water line. And, I mean, we're not talking about just a couple of people being impacted. I mean, that lower area, I can't remember exactly what the, you guys call it, but, I mean, there's some 30 families down there. Yeah. Is, is the lower coast, is that what you call it? Yes, the lower coast. Yeah, okay. <clears throat> there's 25 homes down there. And, uh, like, we had the engineers here on the 16th, uh, the government engineers, and they took our... T- uh, trouble back to the higher ups, they said. And we called them yesterday and they still had nothing for us. So it's hard to know what to be doing, right? 
well, you didn't get jig time out of that $900,000 worth of breakwater, and something's got to be done. So, you know, it's going. there's only a certain amount of area to even consider putting a breakwater up. This is going to be, a, you know, before long, Mayor Pennell, this is going to be a matter of those homes being destroyed and or having to reroute, reroute the road itself because I've been there. I know how narrow we're talking about. So I don't know where the answer lies because if they can come up with some sort of berm or uh, breakwater that's going to stand up to the test of the ocean, we'll see. But boy, oh boy, the last uh, last uh, try was, you know, futile. Well, well, the engineers didn't listen to us. We told them what needed to be done. And for another three or four hundred thousand, we'd say, they could have done the job right. But they put those 12-foot sticks <coughs> down in about, uh, we'd say, clay and beach rocks, uh, about two feet. And, I mean, the uh, the contractor followed the scope work. The work was done as the engineers put it there. But the engineers didn't listen to the people in Trapeze. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, the, someone might come to town and they've got the university degree and the label as an engineer. We absolutely need their input. Of course we do. But folks who have seen the changes over the years, whether it be where the high water mark is today versus where it was in 1960, whether it be the frequency and the severity of the storms and what it's meant for the destruction of that breakwater, some of the on-the-ground information is obviously potentially going to be helpful to even the most highly educated engineer. Well, uh, this is it. Um, we tried to explain to them about the cribbing and everything and the uh, armor rock stone and that that. You need that there on the ocean side to break the ocean before it hits the fence. Sure. But they didn't listen to us. <laughs> well, so what next? I mean, obviously, we're going to have to start talking about money. Uh, am I right in saying that the town itself paid the HST on the last yes. build, so which is about 120000 Yes, about 120000 And the 900000 itself came directly from the federal government's emergency fund? Yes, 929000 Okay, so do you have... Go ahead. I mean, if you're going to spend 900, well, you can say almost a million dollars. Why wouldn't you spend another three or 400 to do the job right? That's a good question. (laughs) It is a good question. (laughs) It's a question we've been asking, but nobody... I mean, the engineers had had their mind just to say what they were going to do. And, like... We had talked with the fishermen and talked with the people that lived down there. And, and I grew up over in that area myself, uh, next to the breakwater, we'd say. And we knew what uh, what could happen. And we explained to them. And all they said, if it goes again, we'll put it back. So a mi- million dollars meant nothing to them. Yeah, it must be nice. But I mean, it's like everything else, right? You get what you pay for. So you buy an expensive uh, handmade couch versus the one that's coming up with a Bristol board. Well, what do you think is going to last longer? What's value for money? So unless we put it back right, you know, even if it costs $2 million, that's better than putting it back five times for $5 million. Now, uh, what we're afraid of, it's uh, still on warranty. I would think it's still on warranty and uh, because there's always a warranty period. So are they going to come back and like do another contract for that and put it back the same way as they had it there before? I, I mean, it's just, uh, it's not common. They have no common sense. Well, if they put it back the same way in the same spot, then it's just a matter of months before it's knocked down again. 
that's right. 100%. So paint the picture for the folks who are listening this morning about the 25 homes that are there and what type of risk is involved because we see the the extent of the storms and some of the storms that have made their way to your shores, whether it be, uh, I can't remember what they're all named, it was Larry made its way there, Fiona, Earl. So paint a picture about what kind of peril some of these homes might be in. Well, I mean, uh, the worst thing of all right now uh, like the uh, the road is open to the ocean, and uh, under that road is where our water line goes to those twenty five homes. So I mean th- that's a, a really a concern, and plus the safety of the residents under. I mean I wouldn't want to live under because I'd be afraid every every storm comes or something happens. Uh, of course. And we see what's going on here, and it's very, very real. There's money has been put forward by federal governments, uh, provincial governments, to really map out things like floodplains, to measure some of the coastal erosion, what that means for how we build and where we build. So these are very real issues. What is your member of parliament saying? Because this was emergency funding from the feds last time, so that would be Ken McDonald. What is Mr. McDonald saying? Well, I called him. Uh, we sent him an email first, and then we called him. And he called back, and he was going to get back to us, and I didn't hear from him since. And we were talking with Loyola several times, Loyola O'Driscoll, and, uh, like, he's just waiting to see what they're going to do, really. Well, you know, it's very likely going to have to be federal monies again, and there's no real rationale as to how and why the federal government would not be involved because we are talking about an emergency, and the, the label on the fund is pretty clear. It's emergency funding. But, you know, really the federal government should be should own that down there, not the town, because they passed it over to the provincial government back probably the 70s, and then they passed it over to the town. There's three federal sites on the other side of that road. We had the battery, we had Powell's Head, and we had Walton's Point Light for the boat. So there are three federal sites on the other side of that breakwater. Fair enough, and I don't know how that gets factored in, but it's certainly part of the argument, I would suggest. Yes, yeah, it is a part. <laughs> uh, I appreciate the time, Mayor Pennell. Anything else this morning? Oh, that's it. Thank you so much. Anytime. Stay in touch. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. That's Rita Pennell. She's the mayor of Trapassi. Let's take a break. Appreciate the patience. Cynthia, she wants to talk about sales service in one part of the province. We're going to talk about MON, talk about home care, whatever you want to talk about right after the newscast. Don't go away. You're listening to a rebroadcast of VOCM Open Line. Have your say by calling 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. And listen live weekday mornings at 9 a.m. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Cynthia, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. My pleasure. Um, I have a, a problem that I hope you can help me with. Is about my cell phone service. Okay. Uh, I need some answers, and I'm not getting them. Um, I'm being cut off the network all the time. I was with one provider, and I was losing my service. Like, even when there was service, it was going on SOS and... Uh, Stuff like that, and I'm not. I'm in a location where I can't get access to go to see someone about it because you know we live in a rural area, and you have to go to Cornerbrook or Stephenville to talk to someone, or you get a call center. So 
anyway, uh, I'm losing service, and I, I called Apple to see what was going on because I have an iPhone, and they told me it was my carrier. Yeah, it would be your carrier. So where are you? Yep. I'm in uh, Doyle's Cadbury Valley, but I'm purposely being cut off by on the network. And uh, I went into Stephenville and got them to call, and they told me that, that there was another line on my account. And uh, I said, well, how can that be? Because I said, like, I'm the only one on this account. And there was an eSIM put on my, my phone. I had to go in and get that straightened out, and now I, I, I've come to find out that my husband has the same problem with his phone. It's like there's another SIM card attached to this number, and that's why we're losing service. And when I asked, like, who was on the call, they told me they couldn't tell me, but it was from another provider on my cell phone account. So let me get this straight. There's two lines on your account from two different providers. That's what was told to me, yes. I don't know how that works. That's pretty strange. So It is strange. It's not even right. And I think that's the reason why I'm losing my service. And I've got to come from the cell phone provider because I don't have access to put another line on my account or eSIM. So that's done is, by the provider. Can't they fundamentally just remove it? I mean, if you're a provider and you have not asked for and or authorized or want to pay for a second line, can't your current carrier just say, okay, we'll deal with that? Well, all I'm getting is a, a like when I go when I call and I don't even think I'm getting the right people sometimes. I think my calls are rerouted because this other it's kind of creepy if there's another line, a SIM card attached to my phone. Why not? They you would just, have all my information. Why not just get another another a new SIM card? I did get a new a new SIM card, but when I went in, I even changed providers and the provider said to me, "Now, if there's another line on that account, you know I have to say." And I said, "Well, why would there be another line on my account? I'm the only one on that account. So why even ask me that? I don't know. I have no idea. It's a strange circumstance. I don't think I've ever heard this particular one before. No. And I went to uh, I went to the police. They told me I had to call. Uh, I have all the information. I'm wondering, like, I'm out in my car now talking to you, Patty. I had to leave my house and go like a 10-minute drive just to make sure I didn't get cut off. Because this morning when I tried to use my phone to call open line, I had SOS for about 10 minutes and four dots. Like my service was just completely cut off. So that tells me that that line is still being used on my account. I suppose. I don't, know, I don't know if that's why you find yourself without, without access to 3G or whatever it is in the Cotteroy Valley. But there's certainly something completely bizarre. And I can't yeah. for the life of me understand why your provider simply can't remove something that's not part of your package from your cell phone. It and seems like when I call, they remove it, but then it gets put back on. Do you know by who? Like, is it by your former well, provider? it's got to be somebody from the company. It's got to be the carrier or somebody has gone in and and accessed my account uh, with uh, pretending to be me. Is That's the only two things I can figure out. Yeah, and I, you know, with verification the way it is, you would think that that would be difficult to do, even though nothing's exactly. impossible now when we talk about people who are trying to fool around with our tech 
and or telecommunications products. So I don't really know where to point you. I do know someone in that industry, and he generally listens to the show, as a matter of fact. So if he's listening this morning, and if you want to give me some idea of what you think might be happening and some some solutions, I'll, if he calls, or pardon me, if he texts me, I'll ask him to give you a shout. How's that? Okay. Uh, I'll t- uh, you have my number, right? Yeah, we got your number. Okay, because I'll tell you one thing. I went and had to go to Port of Ass one day to make a call to my provider, and when I did, I got Arkansas from the States, and it was a lady that told me that they had my profile set up wrong. And But why I got the States when there's Canada, it seems like to me there's a SIM card that shouldn't be attached to my account from another country. I'm not sure. I'm just guessing that there's something going on with my account. That's probably just a call center issue versus a provider from the United States because, of course, they're not in Canada as a United States-based entity. But if my buddy, hopefully he's listening. If not, I'll drop him a text uh, during the news and see if he can't uh, give us some idea. I'll explain to him as best I can if he's not listening to the show okay. right now, and we'll see what I we can do from there. I think what they're doing is I think what's being done is they're uh, using my they got another SIM card attached to this 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 profile, and it's being um, put in a hotspot. And they're using my Wi-Fi. Like like I can't even like get Wi-Fi calling, even at, like even if I'm in an area that's like uh, at home, it's not really really good service. I get one bar of LTE, and sometimes I'll put her on Wi-Fi calling. But if I get cut off from the network, I got nothing. You let know what see, I'm saying? Let me see what I can find out. Okay, Patty, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. No problem. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, Cynthia. Bye-bye. Yeah, does anyone... I don't think I've ever heard of that particular issue. Maybe, I mean, Dave's saying in my ear that she sounds like she's been hacked, and that could very well be the case. But anyway, we'll see if we can uh, figure out something on her behalf. And, of course, it was last summer, if I remember correctly, that the province put out a... Uh, an RFP regarding proposals to expand cellular service to the places that have the gaps or not serviced, period. I don't know whatever became of that. So communities were supposed to be involved, too. They had a deadline to apply for some of the eventual service expansion. That deadline was somewhere in the, somewhere in September, uh, some middle of September somewhere. So if anyone actually knows what became of that, that would be a helpful piece of info because we know the number of dead spots here. And uh, there was one community, if, actually, I think it was probably mainland, as a matter of fact, one of the communities that's in the conversation regarding World Energy, GH2. They fundraised, crowdsourced some 80 grand to bring a cell tower to their community. Not necessarily what we can and need to be doing. Uh, you know, the providers, the carriers, they're charging us pretty big bucks. And for folks who have, regardless of your provider, to not get the service is... Pretty pathetic stuff. Let's take a break. When we come back, the Chains Quest board chair is Chris Lacey. We know that that snowmobile endurance race is coming up next month. There's some comments or questions being asked about the conditions. They say that the vast majority of it is passable, maybe not ideal. We'll get an up-to-date report from the chair, Chris Lacey, right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the board chair at Kane's Quest. That's Chris Lacey. Good morning, Chris. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, buddy. How's it going? Doing okay. You? 
I'm doing pretty good. Excited, and I suppose uh, somewhat stressed out trying to get organized for this year's edition. We all remember what happened last year. A couple of stalls, and then eventually got called off after a team went through the ice into the open water. I've had some people in the area send me some pictures about what they think are maybe some dicey or dodgy sections of the race, but the, the headline on your news release is Kane's Quest 2024, ready to race. What's the status? Uh, that's the that's the status. We're ready to race. Um, we've contacted all the teams, all the local GSARs and, and local contacts, trappers, and the likes that be on the on the land. And um, well, we'll definitely say the, the conditions are not favorable for family rides and stuff. For, but for the world's toughest snow endurance race, it's definitely a go. So when people are telling me that you know some of the routes are passable but not ideal, paint me a picture of what not ideal looks like. Are we talking about some fragile ice conditions or just mucky snow? Or what are people actually referring to? I, if I was to give you my what I'm giving an indication of, it's the, it's the lack of snow. So the ice, inland ice, and uh, ice conditions are actually really good. We have a lot of ice, you know, inches of feet, and there's there's very little to no inland or bay ice that we're concerned about. It's the outer edge of the sea ice that we would be concerned about. But um, the not passable is the boulders and, and the, the very the big barren lands with very little to no snow on it. So, like, the stumps and the rocks that are normally covered by the snow are not covered this year. So it's a lot more um, less forgiving when it comes to what the terrain you're riding over is. So there's definitely going to be some damage done to your sleds and, and your, your machines and stuff. So that's what people are saying when, when it's not favorable. Um, but it's definitely passable because you can drive across it. You can go across it. It's everything is there is is uh, is manageable. But it's definitely from a, a a speed kind of things and a race kind of things. It's going to slow things down. So that's why it's not favorable. What does that mean to the teams and for instance safety concerns? Because you know beating up your machine is one thing, but coming up solid on a stump and maybe getting hurt will bring in the conversation regarding insurance and liability. So how do you and your group address that? Well, in all the insurance companies that we have, we have event insurance and stuff, but racers sign a waiver of liability, so they understand what they're getting into and how they're being managed and the risks there. They're, they're recommended to have their own personal insurance when they sign up for the race to cover them in, events, in, the, you know, in the event of an accident or incident. Um, so we have insurance for ourselves for events, and we have liabilities, and we, we get them to sign the waiver, and they understand the risks that's coming to. But with the conditions that you're going to have, the speeds are going to be a lot slower. So the the risk of a major incident is probably this year it's probably less than than before. So because in the, in previous races when you had feet of snow you'd be going a lot faster and if you hit a rock doing 100 kilometers an hour versus 20 kilometers an hour, the 100 kilometer hour is going to really hurt you and you're going to get bumped up and bruised doing 20. But you you know you could get significantly injured doing 100. So it's um, it's it's stuff that's going to do that. But when it comes to that, we're you know our insurance companies and lot and waivers and the racers understand what they're getting signed up for. So you got 35 teams and there's a, you know, I think it's 3,500 kilometers of race. Do the teams get you know real detailed information about the type of terrain that they're about to experience in whatever stage, or do they get an opportunity to get a flyover or some drone footage or something? Because it's one thing to say they know what they're getting themselves into, but that's theoretical versus what they can actually see prior to putting their sled down uh so that that information is available to people who want to go look at it i mean there's different ways of getting that stuff internet stuff reaching out to locals doing some scouting on your own and stuff Kane's quest doesn't offer that stuff because we try not to get too involved in how the racers get from point a to point b we want you to go to point a to point b and the whole point of the race is for you to navigate your own way and use your navigational skills and technology and, and your ability to to be in the in the extreme sports business and uh, take that as what it is so that's that's a part of the race is either that unknown or that thrill like that that's 
you know, thrill-seeking stuff that people strive for, those types of racers, those types of professionals. Um, but there is ways that, that they, they want that information. That it's out there. They can get it, just for sure. So, I mean, it's a pretty enticing uh, cash prize, too, for the winner, some $50,000. When it comes to money, have you folks been measuring the economic impact of bringing Kane's Quest to Labrador? Yeah, so in part of our development, like our, when we get money from ACOA and the NL governments and stuff and different municipalities and stuff like that, it is an economic report that we have to do. From We boast a lot on tourism. I mean, every hotel from Labrador City down to Lance Clair and up to Nain is booked solid for a week straight, if not longer. And uh, weeks going into the race, um, everything is booked from people doing scouting trips and different uh, people going out and looking at different parts of the land. And just and then after the spinoff of, you know, we got people, we're over a million followers on social media from all across the world, international. And uh, the different things that have brought and the, the friendships that's been made, the, the spinoffs are twofold. And we do measure that and stuff. It's, it's, I guess it's hard to put a solid number on it, but uh, we do our best to give our estimates and our proposals when we put them forward. How many different countries represented in the 35 teams? Uh, it's just Canada and the U.S. right now, okay. uh, this one. But uh, uh, in the European countries, Team Finland is showing interest in coming back again. We we haven't had much say in them. We do know this race was too soon for them from when they were in the 23, but uh, they have shown interest in coming back in 26. Because I believe it was the team from Finland that went through the ice last year, wasn't it? That's correct, yeah. They're, they're the ones that went into the open water there in the bay. Uh, Chris, I appreciate the time. Good luck to everyone who's volunteering, whether it be at the 15 mandatory checkpoints or whatever roles a volunteer is playing to you and your board. Anything else you'd like to say this morning? Just thanking all them volunteers you just mentioned because without those people, this race wouldn't be able to happen. The board and staff are very appreciative for everybody and how Labrador comes together and how everybody in this province comes together and helps us out. So it's, uh, it's just a great, great pleasure to be part of this. Uh, event and we want to thank everybody for helping out and it begins on March the 3rd at Tanya Lake so hopefully it's a safe and fun event for all involved thanks for making time this morning Chris all right, thanks Pat have a good one you too man bye bye Chris Lacey is the chair of the board of Kane's Quest let's go to line number six good morning caller you're on the air uh, good morning Patty morning morning hi uh, I'm, we spoke a couple of years ago about something um, Patty the reason why I'm calling um I'm a visually impaired person. I have some illness against me <clears throat> right now. And my home supports, they want me to pay money that I can't afford. And I've had home supports since my partner died in March of 2022. And I went everywhere I could go. And uh, I had a friend try to help me out. And uh, they're saying that's the government's policy. When, you're, when you go from 64 to 65, they can't help you. But I'm an ill person, and right now I have illness against me. Why? I mean, I'm not supposed to cook over a stove or anything like that. I do a lot of my my house cleaning and that. But uh, you know, I can do some things on a stove, but I got to watch it because I have other illness, illness against me. <clears throat> you know. So the difference between 64 and 65 is then all of a sudden your uh, responsibility of the federal government. Well, I suppose, Patty, that's what it's all about, why, because, <laughs> excuse me, he's like, you know, the person, that when I, when I applied for it, after when, when my partner passed, well, bango, you know, she said, okay, you're eligible, and, you know, I, and, and I am, I, I got sight, thanks for the God, but I, my parents never did want me to cook over a stove, so, and I didn't like stoves and different things like that. But I can't do it. Now, I went to a lot of people in in government and even his boss and his boss. All they're saying, that's the policy. Go to the premier. 
Well, I'm just thinking, should, should a bunch of us get together and protest on Confederation building steps when the snow is all gone? So, just so I'm 100% clear, and I think I might know who you are, and I think I might have some information in my email inbox from you. No, 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 I'm not a, okay. I'm a computer person, but we spoke when uh, you came to my house a uh, good many years ago when you worked you know where, and you brought out some shirts, this person, you know, uh, she likes you, you gave her some hockey shirts with um, signed by a person, you know, teams and that. When was I? Where was I working then? Well, you're not allowed to mention on the air, are you? Sure, it was my my job. <laughs> oh, you're still on the air at Rogers, remember? Okay, I was on out of the fog. And the jerseys were from like the ice caps or something. I can't remember. I got them upstairs. Okay, well, I I did a few deliveries like that over the years, so hopefully you enjoyed the jerseys. Oh, uh, yeah, she, she, she loved your jerseys. Great, that's good, uh, good stuff, good update. So what specifically did you have that you've lost? I just want to make sure I have a firm understanding of what we're talking well, about. Well, I just don't have, as of Thursday this week, I don't really have any home care supports. And I need it because I've got illness against me right now. Uh, you know, that's like I know about broadcasting, but, you know, I'm, right now I'm in a catheter. I can't do certain things. I worked half my life. I DJed for 30 years and had a guy bring it up to me that if if I could do all this stuff, then, you know, I'm not doing his services. The way he talks about it. And then he says, we're blaming on the premier. And I had a good friend who tried everything, and he said to me, um, Bangle, you know, but if you want to meet with me sometime, I'm willing to talk to you again about, you know. And the other thing I think you know, what, what I'm talking, the other girl who works at your station, I've talked to her about something this time to go that I got dealing with, you know, something, and uh, she never did get back to me. Okay. He's a busy person. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, I think so. So, you know, there's some of, some of the support organizations out there. I mean, for instance, have you tried to get some advice or support from, like, the CNIB? Or? CNIB did everything they could for me. I don't know what's out there. They don't have home care supports. No, they don't. But I just thought, you know, they know the landscape. They might be able to help. Maybe someone like in the offices at Seniors NL who would be dealing with very similar issues all the time. You know, they are a really helpful organization. So maybe it's worth a call to them. Well, I've called Seniors. Now, the man who did help me and my partner, he, he don't do this stuff no more. And this is why I'm really stuck. Hmm. And I could talk to you off here and give you some names, but... Uh, you know, I don't want to go. I thought you're not allowed. You're not supposed to be, that's why I'm very worried when I'm out here. You know. Yeah, and you know, I'm catching up from a couple of lost days, and I I don't even know if I've got two minutes to eat a bite of lunch here today. But <laughs> okay. I'd be willing to uh, follow up off air in the next few days when and if I have some time, if that works. Okay, well, I mean, you're, you know, I mean, you're, I know you got to eat by. Yeah. <laughs> I should probably eat a little bit less or le- eat a little bit healthier, one or the other. Uh, let's see what we oh, can yeah. figure out here. Oh, I've got your number. Right. And I, do you want me to give you my, uh, can I give my cell number to off here when I, I mean, i got to go out and pay my bills, keep the wolf away from the door. Well, I'll put you on hold. Give it to Dave. Give it to Dave. Yeah. Okay. All right. We'll, t- we'll, t- we'll talk. I appreciate the time. Good luck. Thanks, Penny. Okay. Bye. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Already's on hold. Dave, you can grab your cell phone number for me. Uh, break for the news. When we come back, water, sewer, the recreational food, fishery, Memorial University, and whatever we have time for after that. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Uh, 
Okay, let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the independent member from Mount Pearl Southlands. That's Paul Lang. Paul, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Doing okay. How about you? I'm not doing too bad, sir. Patty, uh, I wanted to talk about uh, Mon this morning, but before I do, I just want to say that uh, uh, I was at the rally uh, yesterday at the Confederation Building. I totally agree with the Nurses Union uh, with NAEP that the Auditor General needs to be brought in to look at this uh, you know, a uh, very troubling contract, to say the least. So I did write uh, the other general this morning myself and just added my voice to it and just to say that I supported the call to have her uh, do uh, an investigation of the travel nurses. So uh, just wanted to put that out there before I got to my subject. Yeah, um, you know, I think it's sort of interesting, some of the comments from Minister Osborne. You know, in calling in the Comptroller, which I think is a good first start, uh, first step, to be honest with you, because that person is perfectly positioned inside the workings of government to deal with issues like procurement. Mm-hmm. So, but the Minister says that is a first step. So that kind of leads me to believe that the Minister is also considering asking the Auditor General to have a look here. What do you think? Uh, I hope he is, and to be honest with you, based and and of course based on whatever um, you know, because because there's lots of uh, I've heard lots of troubling stories. I'm sure uh, have you that would lead one to believe that uh, maybe the uh, RCMP needs to have a look at it. But we'll see what uh, comes of of, of this. I, I personally would like to see the Auditor General and uh, to have that independent review, and then depending what. Uh, that office might uncover if there is a need to uh, bring in uh, the other authorities to look at it, well, then that's what we need to do. But uh, uh, there's no doubt that uh, the amount of money we're talking about here, um, you know, in this contract that's getting paid out is just absolutely ridiculous. I know the minister said that it was a necessary evil uh, at the time. And and, and I don't doubt that, I mean, you know, if you were faced with a situation of we're going to shut down emergencies or we have to find nurses somewhere and this was the only option presented, I guess I can see where it could happen, but it certainly needs to end sooner rather than later, in my view. Yeah, well, you know, like most things, if it's of necessity, fair enough. But it's also required, I would think, to understand timelines and off-ramps and how we're going to try to reduce, which we have, reduce our reliance on the travel nurses. But people are, I think some things are getting conflated into the one pot, like, for instance, on the meal payments. Like, I also heard a story this morning where they paid for the air transportation for a pet i mean what uh on top of that things like meals 1.6 million dollars that to me seems more like a concern between the travel agency nurses and the agency itself because if in the contract it says that the government will pay canadian health labs for meals and receipts that are submitted so it sounds like the company is quote-unquote ripping off the nurses as opposed to that's a government concern because if it's in the contract it's in the contract that would be you know not necessarily an ag related matter but anyway i don't want to get sidetracked too far with travel nurses no. but it's frustrating yeah it, it, it's very frustrating but anyway i, I just wanted to, t- to speak about mon and uh, i just want to say right off the off the get-go look um i have the utmost uh, pride and respect for mon as an institution we've seen graduates from Memorial university take on leaderships all to, all over the, the, the globe with uh, memorial university education and so on and there's great instructors and staff uh, there and and we should be very proud of that institution so part of me you know feels a little bit i suppose sad and having to bring these issues up but at the end of the day when we're talking about publicly funded institutions uh we have to raise uh, we have to raise issues it's uh, i think it's in all of our best interests and it's certainly part of my role uh, as as an mha um 
people may recall a young man by the name of uh, of, of Matt Barter, and he was the young uh, the young uh, man. He's a student at Mon, and he does uh, he does some uh, investigative journalism, if you will, uh, at the university, and, and writes in the local paper there. And um, and he contacted me, uh, I guess, a couple of months back about the fact that he had put in a uh, an access to information request. Um, to find out what uh, bonuses and I believe vehicle allowances that were being paid out for executive bonuses and the vehicle allowances for uh, it was Genesis Center, Seacor, and the Center for Fisheries Innovations, I believe uh, it, it was. Um, and um, he was denied that information by the university. Basically, they had indicated that those three entities had been incorporated uh, by the university and somehow... Uh, because of that, they didn't have to release this information. Now, this uh, obviously uh, raised a red flag for him. It raised a red flag for me. Uh, I thought it was absolute nonsense, and I suggested to him that he should file a complaint with the Privacy Commissioner, which he did. And Mr. Harvey, of course, uh, came out with his decision indicating that, uh, yes, indeed, they should release this uh, information. Uh, these are all entities of the university, uh, and you can't just simply just incorporate parts of Mon or whatever and, and as a way of uh, shielding information. Um, and uh, anyway, apparently now um, I've been advised that uh, the university intends to fight this through the court. Uh, uh, the, the privacy commissioner's um, uh, decision, uh, which they do have a right to do. Now, obviously, uh, this, when we look at the backdrop of what happened with the Auditor General, the report that came out, the scathing report uh, that, that, that came out, all the issues that happened in the, the former, um, I, I guess, um, uh, President's uh, office under her control, but not just under her control, under the control of many others and, and issues showing that, you know, basically, uh, not having proper management controls in place, to, not even an organizational chart to understand who's responsible for what at university and so on, as I said, very disturbing. Now to find out that we have these entities within university that were for some reason incorporated, and now you know we want to find out simple information as to corporate bonuses, which uh, I didn't even think there would be such a thing as uh, executive bonuses, to be honest with you, at the university, but apparently so at these entities, we can't find out and now they're going to fight the uh, the, the private scheme in court. So two things. First of all, uh, I would hope, I would like for the Minister of Education, if she could, to step in and say to Mon Command Vice, like, release this information, this is crazy. Uh, if that's not going to happen and they're going to fight it, hopefully uh, they lose and they have to release it. And in the, in the off chance that uh, the privacy commissioner, you know, is wrong and doesn't have the ability to to compel them to show this information. Then, if legislation, legislative change is required in the House Assembly to prevent this from happening, then that's what needs to happen. Because while this may be mon, we could be talking about any government agency, board, and commission in terms of a precedent that would be set. That if there was any information you wanted shielded, all you got to do is create some entity or division within yourself incorporate it and then you can hide all the information and that's in nobody's best interest so i hope that this gets i hope the court agrees with mr harvey and if not like i say 
we need the legislature uh, changed, and that's what we need to do. Yeah, I would imagine when something like, say, Genesis or Secor is incorporated, then, of course, any negotiation with bonuses for executives would be uh, authorized by their boards. That doesn't mean they should be able to shield that information from anybody. I think right. this is just a miscalculation, uh, again, uh, at the university level here, because, you know, even if there's some public outrage, if there's a board in place... And that's what I've heard from voices who I know or that are on the inside looking out at this, is that if the boards are in place and the board saw fit based on performance and some of the achievements at Genesis and or the work that the C-Corps does with private entities, of which there are many, then if there's any sort of justification for the bonuses, then let's just have it explained. That's it. You know, no, no less, no more. Like, remember when Alcor was getting those massive bonuses? Even though we're going through some of the boondoggles, you know, they would say that some of the bonuses are directly linked to safety. Okay, at least, I mean, as flimsy as it might sound, it's, it's at least a part of an answer. And consequently, through the work done by the Auditor General and public discourse, those things went by the wayside. It would be helpful just for the university's sake, given the tumultuous couple of years they've experienced, if that they'd be a bit more forthcoming, as opposed to a legal challenge, which comes with legal bills and time and frustration. So I think they've made a miscalculation here. Uh, final thoughts to you, Paul, before I have to get to the final break of the morning. No, I, I, I agree, Patty. And when you see these types of things happening, uh, like I say, Memorial University is something that we've all been and should be proud of. And uh, all they're doing is hurting their own reputation, in my view, when you get tangled up in these types of matters. So, you know, again, I would hope that they could just voluntarily uh, understand, uh, you know, what's being asked here, that it is reasonable, and simply release sure. it if they do, if they do. Uh, continue to challenge it in court. Like I said, hopefully they lose. If they don't, uh, and there's some technicality here that allows Mon and any other uh, entity of government to simply set up corporations and hide, hide sure. information, if that should be what the court rules, then if we need to go into House Assembly and change uh, the legislation to prevent that from happening in the future, then that's what we need to do. And I would certainly at that point in time call on the Premier and the Minister to do so. Appreciate the time. Thank you, Patty. All the very best. Thanks, Paul. Bye-bye. All the best. Bye. And now, they're not all the same type of entity either, right? Genesis as a business incubator and C-Corp, which has been in business a long time, does a lot of uh, work with the private sector. But the – and this is from a guy who knows – the Center for Fisheries Innovation – absolutely is housed at the Marine Institute, but my understanding is, once again, that this is an independent entity from the Marine Institute. I'll get clarification on that, but I'm pretty sure that's accurate. Final break of the morning. Tom's up next to talk about Kilbride, water and sewer. Graham with the last minute to talk about the food fishery petition. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two. Tom, you're on the air. Good morning, Patrick. Good morning to you. Uh, I was going to make a quick comment on the uh, on the payments of those nurse practitioners and things, but I won't because I want to... Uh, hear what the gentleman has to say uh, about the fishery because I have people coming in from Quebec specifically for the fishery so I'd like to, it to be um, seven days a week because it's crazy as it's not. Uh, the, uh, the reason I'm calling as you're probably aware was uh, um, because of a recent call I had made to you about where the city had put the sewer line to our area here in Kilbride and uh, then uh, gave us not one bill uh, for about $4,000, but also a second bill for $4,000. Uh, and uh, the first bill um, is based on what they determined to be an average last size in the city. 
And the second bill of approximately $4,300, $4,400 is because we have oversized lots, because we have to have oversized lots in order to meet the provincial requirements to have a septic tank. Uh, so when we received all of these bills there a um, couple of, uh, or about a month or so ago, uh, then I started questioning what the heck is going on. And of course, all the residents start calling me, and I keep saying, listen, guys, I'm not the MHA, I'm not the council, but I'll do what I can. And I have been uh, communicating with the people from the city to ask a whole bunch of questions about why we're required to pay this approximately $9,000. And, you know, this area in, in particular in the city is filled with seniors. And a lot of people are, are hard-pressed to be able to come up with $9,000. Now, I specifically asked them, how much did this project cost and where did all the money come from? And uh, it's, it's the project was... $11 million project. Uh, the, the, they're going to get a million dollars back for HST rebates. The, uh, the feds gave $4 million and the province gave $3 million. And there's, it says, ultimate recipient contribution. I would assume that's us. It's $3 million. And so far, they've spent $8 million. Now, <laughs> uh, I'm a little confused about all of this, you know. Uh, why are we being required to pick up, you know, approximately $3 million, I would assume? What's the city paying? What's um, – I'm not getting answers to any of these questions. So, you know, I don't know what to do. And the, and the issue becomes one of the – the first $4,000 is an interest-bearing one. If you don't pay it by tomorrow, you start paying interest at 15%. And the other one, I guess, that sits as a lien against your property. So that's the situation we're faced with. So for the people who have been calling me, I have the answers to all the questions I asked, but I'm no further ahead. I don't know where to proceed from here. So. One of the strangest parts about all this, because I remember when the plea coming from Kilbride to have these services put in, because if you're paying property tax like everybody else, you, th you should think you're going to get the same type of services. The problem that initially began with the fact that, okay, approval was given to put the water and sewer in, but the residents weren't told they were on the hook. And then all of a sudden, in the, in the mailbox was the bill. So if the conversation had to include, here's how it's going to work, here's how much yeah. we think it's going to cost, here's what we think yeah. your individual contribution will be, then we would have at least had a fulsome conversation versus just out of the blue, here's your bill. Uh, that was the big issue I raised with the city when I did this. And I said, when you send us the bill out of the blue, you included a 2021 letter that said that we were that there was a project coming by and you're getting water and sewer. <laughs> of course, we never got water. Uh, and I asked that question as one of my questions to the city: Why didn't we get water? And it became it's technically not feasible to get water. I, I don't understand it. The, the water treatment plant on Ruby Line is just above us there, and gravity still exists as far as I know. So. But they've had to dig, uh, I think at last count, seven artesian wells because people lost their water. Uh, the city had to pay for this at about 25000 bucks a pop. Uh, they, they, there were some major screw-ups from an engineering perspective where people down the road from us 
got flooding because basically the road is running through a pond. Uh, and as late as uh, early as uh, last uh, couple of days, they've been down digging up the ditches again. So, you know, I got more questions than I got answers. And, I, you know, I don't know where to go from this other than, you know, I'm going to pay my interest bearing one tomorrow because I don't want to be doing, dealing with interest. But if somebody out there has got some advice to me as to how to proceed with it, I, I don't know what to do. I think it's absolutely crazy that we're being asked to pay for something that the federal government mandated the city that they had to do. You cannot put sewage in Shoal Harbor anymore. You have to bring it to the treatment plant. So, okay, we 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 understand that and we appreciate that. But I got one, one person in our area who's 83 years of age who is approximately 500 feet from the road. It's uphill. You'd have to put in a special pump He'd have to go through a cliff. It would cost him $50,000 to hook on to the bloody thing. So naturally, he's not going to do it. And he has to pay the $4,000. Yeah, it's a strange (laughs) set of circumstances. And a lot of it sounds just unfair because people weren't even in the know. Uh, Tom, I appreciate the time this morning. I want to sneak in one more quick one before the end of the show. I know, yes, and I I want to listen to this too because i got people coming from Quebec to summer for the fishery. Okay. Great. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. Bye-bye. Last word goes to Graham Wood on three. Graham, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you doing? Doing great. You? Good. Wonderful. This is the last day for our petition, and uh, we're up to a little over 3,900 now. And we were hoping to get to five, but anyway, we're almost up to four, and uh, this is the last day for for people uh, across the country, really, uh, who, who uh, are interested in supporting the petition. Uh, they can go into um, ourcommons.ca and um, look for petition 4781, E4781, and they can sign it uh, till 5 o'clock today. And for folks who don't know, we're talking about expanding it from 39 days uh, offered at the 11th hour to 90 days, a much more uh, accessible uh, opportunity for people to get out and catch something for their plate. Uh, I appreciate the time, Graham. Good luck with it. Thank you very much, Patty. I'm sure we'll keep you updated. Uh, we'll hopefully have it uh, presented in Parliament early in March. I appreciate the update when one is available. Thank you. Thanks, Graham. Take care. You're welcome. You too. All right. Good show today. Big thanks to all hands who support the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.